Hello and welcome to Media Made, the show in which we year by year explore the movies, music, and TV that most invaded our lives. I'm your host, your no good, dirty, rotten, pig stealing, great great grandfather, Rod, and I'm joined by a thimble named Jess. <laughs> Cute. Yep, so we are back to our regularly scheduled programming after our April Fool's Day episode where we talked about old arcade games. Hello, welcome back. And that is our worst trafficked episode since uh, Liquid Tension Experiment and Lauren Hill. Hey, which was, that's strange. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, you should listen to both of those episodes. You should definitely listen to like, the Lauren Hill one. Yeah, Lauren Hill was great. Yeah. Like, if you, you're like, who the heck is Lauren Hill? Why haven't She's you listened to She's one of, like, it? the most underappreciated acts of the 90s. I mean, she was pretty appreciated, but she's definitely uh, one of the most under-remembered for some reason. Yeah. I mean, people know the Fugees, I guess. You know, they know the one Fugees song. <laughs> the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> listen to that and listen to our freaking... 1980 arcade episode. And then send an apology tweet to Rod. He was really hurt about that last one. <laughs> anyway, we're back. We're talking movies of 2003. Uh, if you're new to the show, by the way, what we've done is we looked at a list of every film released in the year 2003, and we decided which one each of us had watched the most in our lives. Yep. So, uh, I mean, not not necessarily our favorites. Mm. Mine's, I, mine might be my favorite. Maybe It's probably your favorite kid's film. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of nostalgia for the movie we're going to talk about. And uh, yeah, so... Most. Most. <laughs> the, the most. We watched the these most movies watched. the most from that year. Uh, and uh, it's a new year, as always. Oh, 2003. Break out the freedom fries. Oh, no. <laughs> we're at war. Again. All, uh, we're at war. More. More. Oh, yeah. More war. I forgot two came after three, but before one. Wait, that's not how math works. Never mind. If we have, you know, those weapons of mass destruction, they're out there. We got we to get them. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Moving on. <laughs> that's that's ten that, years later. Twenty years later. Oh yeah, twenty. Oh. Twenty years. Hey, you're right. Yeah, we are exactly twenty years away from 2003. Oh. Yeah. So these movies are turning twenty this year. Yeah. If they haven't already. <laughs> uh, your movie has not turned twenty yet. My but it will movie soon. is a child and will never grow up. Twenty is too old. Twenty is too old. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. At New Year, I ask you, where were you in the year 2003? In middle school, the years I do not remember. Was I in middle school? Still in middle school? I feel like I was not in middle school. Maybe it was like that, that year where it's like half in middle school, half in high school? Yes. Yes. That was my 2006. Ugh, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I guess I was now a, uh, uh, a pimply freshman with still no friends in high school. Was high school a step up or step lateral? I can't remember laterally. middle school, so step up? Yeah, my, my high school experience was a step up, mm. but, uh, you know. I had friends in high school, I think. No, not I think. I know I had friends in high school. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. That's good. I would have been transitioning from the fifth to the sixth grade, 2003. Ugh. <laughs> Is there a way to older you up? Can we just can we just start fudging the numbers? I'm trying to think. Well, I mean, you know, I was like at the at that point it was like that was the year it's like, you know, I was still obsessed with Zelda and Sonic. Has and, not changed in yeah, 20 I know. years. Yeah, well, no, I don't maybe like, Sonic. I don't like Sonic as much, but, <laughs> um and probably when we this was the year Christmas time, 2003. We got our DVD player. Oh. Our first DVD player. So all the runners up on my list this year Big DVD movies. <laughs> you know, I watched the the move. My movie 2003. I watched a lot on DVD. Yeah. Audio commentary. I discovered audio commentaries for the first time. So oh. that was what I was doing. 
2003-4. You were a, lot a podcast of DVDs. listener. Podcast didn't exist yet, so I had to yeah. listen to audio commentaries. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was up to. Yeah. I, you know, I'm bad with like all these things. I don't know. I was in, I was, I was writing more terrible stories. I was reading Romeo and Juliet for the first time and hating it. Mm. <laughs> you know, I remember in, in fifth grade, like this time, so 20 years ago, I was, I was like really, like, I think, like, you know, pre my preteen years were coming, you know, they were there, you know, I was be about to be a teenager, I guess. You know, a couple mm -hmm. years removed from teenager, but uh, I got all the angst early. Very angsty. <laughs> I wore I wore a hood a lot. Like I would just wear my hoodie and just wear the hood all the time. Maybe you wanted to be a Yu-Gi-Oh. Just one of I the didn't. I didn't realize I could grow my hair out yet. Uh, but I, you know, I still wanted something <laughs> to cover your neck. Yes, <laughs> my my forehead. You're like, I don't like these bits. Let's just cover it in a hood. Yeah, so I wore a hood, and I was like drawing a lot of like. What I would, I was like probably like really edge edge lord like Ooh. not not that not edge lord but like you know you know d uh, edgy comics and stuff. Wow, edgy for a six year old for a, for an eleven year old, yeah. <laughs> twelve year old. You know, mm. it took a shy guy from Mario, made him edgy. Wow, him devil horns. Can I please see these? I, know, I don't know where they're at. Give them to me now. Anyway, yeah, that's that's where I was at. 2003. <laughs> but my movie is not an you know it's not a dark moody movie. It kind of is, I guess. But eh, it could be it's not, seen. Not what I would consider an edge lord classic. Yeah, but we're not there yet. No, no. Let's movie. talk about your movie no, first. Your it's, movie of 2003. My movie's better. Let's put it at the end. No, save the best for last. No, absolutely not. <laughs> that's what we're doing. Saving the best for last. <laughs> Released December 24th, 2003, Christmas Eve. Oh. Written by P.J. Hogan and Michael Goldenberg. Directed by P.J. Hogan. Starring Rachel Hurdwood, Jeremy Sumter, Ludovine Sonnier, okay, Olivia Williams, and Jason Isaacs. That is Peter Pan. Now, think of the happiest things. No. Same as having wings. Let's all try it just once more. Look, we're rising off the floor. Jim and me. Oh, my. We can fly. You can fly. We can fly. Incorrect. Incorrect. <laughs> Sorry, I clicked the wrong button. Let me try this one. <laughs> you on purpose? Still no. Sorry, wrong button again. Shush. Hold on, hold on. I got this one. No. Who's the dirtiest dog in this wonderful world? Was that the right one? <laughs> By the way, that was P that was Peter Pan Live starring Christopher Walken. Oh my gosh. That was Christopher Walken as Captain Hook. <laughs> no, no, 2003's Peter Pan. What is your name? What is your name? Wendy, Myra, Angela, darling. Peter Pan. Where do you live? Second to the right and then straight on till morning. <gasps> they put that on the letters? Don't get any letters. But your mother gets letters. Don't have a mother. No wonder you were crying. I wasn't crying about mothers. I was crying because I can't get the shower stick. And I wasn't crying. Not you know, as, not as bombastic as Christopher Walken. But. You know, I'm noticing a trend in the 2000s. You are announcing my stuff with more and more down votes in your 
voice. <laughs> it's early. I can't think. You're like, oh, here it is. Sir. Sir. My movies are good. Sir. This movie. Sir. Has positives, but it's not good. <laughs> but here's the thing. It might be for the fact that I'm like, I have not. I am, I am yet to see a Peter Pan movie that I fully enjoy. Mm. It's like. Okay, this is 2003's Peter Pan. Okay, they they took they made they remade Peter Pan again, like they do every ten years. Yes, that's the problem. They, we're due for another one soon. We're getting one this hey. year. Again, <laughs> Disney Plus. You want to watch Peter and Wendy? It's coming out. Yeah. The the latest in Disney's line of uh, live action remakes. We're doing it, folks. Anyway, yeah. So it's like I didn't care for Hook. We talked Hook, 1991 movies. That was your movie of 1991. Yes. Uh. You care for half. I of liked that. a lot of Hook, but uh, man, that, one the movie's too long. Mm-hmm. It's too boring, <laughs> um, and like it has like Peter has to like find his his inner child twice, <laughs> and then you know grow up twice. It's weird. Okay, Sometimes... movie doesn't know an end, <laughs> but it does end, so it knows. And then like I never liked the Peter Pan from the fifties. Disney fair. Disney's Peter Pan like. Mm-hmm. We watched it, and like that's the thing. I used, I grew up on a lot of Disney, like classic Disney films, mm-hmm. you know. And it's like they were always just like one big thing. Right. Go to pre like preschool daycare, uh, you know. They would put on any everything from the Rescuers Down Under to Snow White. Right, right, right. But Peter Pan, like, it never clicked with me. Mm-hmm. You know, that's um, fair. And 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 I don't, I I don't care to go back to it these days because it's really racist. But that's true. <laughs> that's true. It's true. Yeah, so it's like I, I think just Peter Pan for me it just don't gel with me. All right. Okay. But uh, yeah, this one also didn't gel with me. But I we'll talk more about it. But you know, maybe it's the best Peter Pan thing I've seen. It's, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like. I haven't it. seen Peter Pan live. Maybe that's better. Mm. <laughs> I saw some clips though. And Christopher Walken, he forgot his lines and they kept it in. Wow. <laughs> He's sitting there like. Mm. <laughs> You could cut that. It's edited. Well, it's live. <laughs> well, okay. Are you going to tell us the history of just this movie or the history of Peter Pan? Just this movie. Good, good. We already did that, right? No. We did. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a novel yes. and a play from the early 1900s. Yes. Yeah, like, I think it was like 1907, 1911. First play ever made. No. <laughs> so yeah, it, you know, it's a British play. Right. But the history is really interesting. Mm. I, I, it went it went places I was not expecting. Oh, okay. But, uh, we'll talk Did it go to what, what, is, what is your history with Peter Pan, 2003? Um, I watched it because I like, like I said in the hook, I like, I like Peter Pan. I think Peter Pan's just one of those stories that makes me want to like write. And it could be for the same reason I like Thumbelina, that uh, there's so many places where it can be better that I've just like... I want to go and be creative after listening to this. So I usually feel that with all of the Peter Pan movies that I, I watch that I'm just kind of like, oh, let me go do this. But I watched this one a lot because um, I thought the little boy was cute. And cutie patootie. He's Jeremy, a little Jeremy patootie Sumter. cutie. Uh, and I, I don't know. I think I just found it interesting. I remember I, I, I definitely preferred it over the cartoon which i think i've seen the cartoon maybe twice in my life uh and i preferred hook over this but i don't know i just like really liked it It was probably because the cute young boy and (laughs) and um i remember really liking how uh neverland looked like i just thought it was really like 
<laughs> painterly in places and and some of the sets were really cool which is probably the ways that i liked hook too hmm. you, you like the green screens and the poorly color graded uh, yes environment <laughs> i did i did we'll it talk was more moody. about that we'll it was moody i liked it i was a moody what 13 year old how old was i yeah i was probably 13 yeah 14 by the time this by the time this out, movie came out i was 14 i uh I, I thought I'd never even heard of this movie until we went through this list and you said, oh, that's my movie. But then like when we watched it, there was one clip of Wendy like set telling her brothers, he's going to teach us to fly. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, yeah, man, I remember that. So either like TV commercials, mm -hmm. that was the one line I remember. <laughs> so who knows? You know, maybe it was being advertised on like Kids WB or Nickelodeon. Disney Channel. No, Disney didn't had nothing to do with this. Uh, oh, wow. You sound so mad about it. Like, don't put this on Disney. And, one, and also, yeah, it was like, if, if Disney had, it may be the Disney Channel. But Disney Channel didn't have commercials. They had commercials for things that for Disney... For they made, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but, for but, Disney. But, yeah, and Disney did not... Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. So, yeah, this is, a, this is just an independent production. Not an independent. It's, you know... It's a big production. Independent, independent of Disney. Disney. Yes. Got it. So, yeah. Want to hear more about that history? Can we get three Peter Pans in the same way we got three Pinocchios last year? Oh, was that last year? Was yeah, that, that was year? last year. <laughs> <laughs> father. No. <laughs> Let's hear your history about the man without a father. Oh, man. And the father without a son. Oh. Egyptian film producer Dodi Fayed, son of billionaire hotel sports mogul Mohammed Al-Fayed, had been trying to make a live action Peter Pan film since 1985. Oh, wow. That's before either of us were born. Around the time him and his father's production company, Allied Stars, bought the rights to the character from London's Great Osmond Street Hospital, which had been given all the copyright over the character by author J.M. Barry in 1929. Wow. So, yeah, this this uh, street hospital is has been the shepherd of the Peter Pan franchise since the 20s. Wow. Yeah. How did Disney make a movie? I probably just asked them. Oh, Can we fair. license this character? That's fair. In 1989, Fayed sold the rights to TriStar Pictures, who were producing a live-action Peter Pan film with Steven Spielberg. It's a little movie you might have heard of. What's it called? Pan? It's called Hook. <laughs> we talked about it in our 1991 movies episode. Yeah. Uh, Fayed received an executive producer credit on that film. So that's, yeah, just because he, he had the rights and yeah. Spielberg wanted him. Totally, get it. By the late 90s, Fayed became interested in producing a new live-action adaptation of Peter Pan, one more faithful to the source material. Oh, I'm sorry. Wasn't Hook faithful? No. <laughs> to that end, he and his father began negotiating an extension of the rights granted by Great Osmond years earlier. Also around this time, Fayed met Diana, Princess of Wales, with whom he became romantically involved in the summer of 1997. Oh, dear. Yes. Like... Yeah. Oh, allegedly? No, no, they were together. Oh. Coincidentally, Princess Diana was serving as the president of the Great Osmond Street Hospital at the time. I don't think he became romantically involved with Princess Diana because she had the rights to Peter Pan. Yeah. It was just a funny coincidence. They met at like they they met at like a business meeting. Like Didn't he already he already had the rights before like he, years they, they, before. He had it in the he had it in the 80s. Then he sold them to TriStar. They worked their way back to Sony, mm -hmm. and hit, the, the Fayeds were trying to get it back. Got it. And during that process, he just so happened to become friendly with Princess Diana. Friendly. Mm -hmm. 
Fayed reportedly shared his ideas of a Peter Pan film with Diana, who said she, quote, could not wait to see the production once it was underway. Did she see it? Nope. Oh. Tragically, both Dodie Fayed and Princess Diana were killed in a car accident on August 31st, 1997. Oh, no. He was her boyfriend who was killed in the car, too. Oh. Yeah. I was not expecting to have to cover this. Oh, my gosh. When we talked about a Peter Pan movie. Oh, my gosh. Muhammad Al-Fayed, Dodie's father, thus decided to follow through on his son's Peter Pan project by co-producing alongside Sony-based Red Wagon Productions, Universal, and Columbia. This is why you said The Man Without the Sun? Yeah. Okay, you're no longer allowed to not like this movie. It's literally a love letter to his son. You can't you can't say it's a bad movie. Yeah, it's a love letter the, the, to his son. The movie's dedicated to Dodie Fayette. How dare you say this is a bad movie? How dare you? No, no, Kids, th- th- this you is, will be voting that this is the better movie. This is, a, you know, like a sweet thing that his father did for him. Gosh, that's tragic. Yeah, it's so sad. Move on. <laughs> what? Next fact. <laughs> Holy crap. Following negotiations with other directors like David O. Russell. You heard of that guy? No. He, uh, by this point, he had done Three Kings and Flirting with Disaster, but he would go on to make uh, The Fighter... I Heart Huckabees, Silver Linings Playbook. I've only heard of one of those movies and I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> he was like he was like a hot shot. He was a big deal. Back I then. don't like, think he, I would he, like he to was... watch his movies. The one I've heard of and I've seen, I do not like. Anyway, after considering some people, Sony signed PJ Hogan, known for Muriel's Wedding and My Best Friend's Wedding. Does he like weddings? I guess so. Was there a wedding in this one? No, there, there was supposed to be. <laughs> Young Wendy, but she didn't want to. Sony hired P.J. Hogan to direct Peter Pan. Hogan also co-wrote the screenplay with Michael Goldenberg, then best known as the co-writer of 1997's Contact. Is that Jodie Foster? Directed by uh, Robert Zemeckis? Oh, I don't know. About Aliens? Nope. Don't know it either. Good job, Hulk Hogan. I've seen bits in that. Hulk Hogan? (laughs) That's what you said. He was a producer on here. It's his son, P.J. Hogan. son's Hulk Hogan. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk of casting a little bit later. Principal photography began September 17th, 2002, concluded May 5th, 2003, taking place entirely, I knew this part, inside sound stages on Australia's Gold Coast, Queensland. Feels like a movie shot in a sound stage. It does. The, the, the George Lucas problem. I mean, but some the practicals were much nicer. Some of the sets looked okay. Yeah. A lot of them looked like blue screen. You're a blue screen. Hogan had originally planned on filming in a variety of locations such as Tahiti, New Zealand, and London, but abandoned this idea after scouting some locations. Probably the studio said, "Uh uh-uh, that's too expensive. That's too expensive. Also, having kids out in the wild, you can only use them for a certain amount of hours. So they didn't even film in real London. I mean, that's They filmed in CG London. Oh, that's true. It was very CG. Remember, as soon as it opened, you're like, ugh! Yeah, it was horrible. What is this? Filming on sound stages did, quote, Retain some of the theatricality of the original That's true. play. Something that Hogan thought was important, which sounds like a cop-out to me. Sounds like an excuse. Why? Because you're like, if you're making a movie, make a movie. He's it- trying to rationalize. He's mm. like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. Look, he's got the, the theater feel. I was like, no, man. You wanted to make a real movie. I mean, fair. But also, you know, he knows that it's also a project for a son. So he's going to say all the positive things, unlike you. Here's something funny. <laughs> Finding Neverland, a Miramax film about J.M. Barry, 
the, the author of Peter Pan and the yes. creation of Peter Pan was originally scheduled to release in 2003. But the producers of our film, who held the screen rights to the Peter Pan story, refused permission for that film to use scenes from the play unless its release date was delayed until the following year. Mm. So that is somebody out Weinsteining Weinstein. Good job. Because that is something the, the Weinstein no. company would do. That's is, terrible. You know, try to pressure another studio to do something. No, they played the game. Yeah. And they beat him. So. Good job. That's, that's something good for this production. <laughs> that's really it. That's that's the history of Peter Pan 2003. It came out. It came out. And uh, it was dedicated Before to Neverland. Dodie Fayed. <sighs> Didn't think we'd be talking about the death of the princess. Uh, or the death of anybody. Yeah. Well. Anyway, this movie. This movie. This movie. Uh, it's Peter Pan. It is, I think, largely faithful to the book. Possibly. Neither of us have read it. Never haven't read the book. I guess I could have asked a. I guess I could have asked our friend who's like uh, obsessed with Peter Pan. Well, I don't know if she's still obsessed. She was when we were younger. But everything from the, the like the screenplay seems yeah very faithful to yeah. the, the writing. Like the the story beats are this you know what you would expect from Peter Pan. Yeah, the, the fifty five movie I think follows the same like general outline of story. Yeah, I think both. I think all the movies tend to like make Tink less violent and horrible. So that's the only difference, I think. Tinkerbell. She's real bad. She's real not good. (laughs) She is the id. But yeah, I'm pretty sure it's really faithful to the book. Yeah, so I figured we can go through a little bit of the story, you know, general beats, but really meet our characters. And talk about the actors who played them because one of the best parts of this movie are the performances. That's true. I, I don't think there's a... Weak performance in the bunch. I agree. I agree. They're it all, all really surprisingly good. good considering ha- over half your cast is children. Yeah. Like this is like, you know, Steven Spielberg levels of getting good child actors. These are these all these kids are good. I don't, I don't hate any of them. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like how you hate children actors yeah, and I, stuff and they just like knocked it out of the park, the Neverland. They did good. You know, you know, and I hate Peter Pan in the same way I hate all Peter Pans, but that has nothing to do with Jerry Sum- Jeremy Sumter, the actor. <laughs> He's got bravado. I think that's, you know, it's like he does bring a bravado to Peter Pan that makes Peter Pan kind of a, you know, like what a little, little, uh, a spoiled little kid. Yeah. What He's a, a spoiled little brat. But like, that's the character. Yeah. You know? So it's like, you know, at least he brings that. Yeah. 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 Agreed. But he plays it well. Let's meet these kids. All right. So, uh, main the two main characters the the novel itself is named after these two characters who are they mom and dad darling no nana darling no don't say michael darling don't say michael and george either (laughs) michael and john (laughs) don't say michael and john either Mm, slightly that'd be wendy and peter wait wait i was gonna get there oh the cleverness of me of course i did nothing you did a little a little Good night. Wendy. One girl is worth more than 20 boys. You really think so? I live with boys, the lost boys. They are well named. <laughs> Children, you fall out of their prams when the nurse is not looking. If they are not claimed in seven days, they are sent to the Neverland. Are they girls too? Girls are much too clever to fall out of their prams. Peter, it is perfectly lovely the way you talk about girls. I should like 
to give you a kiss. Definitely some uh, romantic tension in there. How old is Wendy? She's, she's probably like 11 or 12. Right before womanhood. She's so forward. I met this boy who climbed into my window and I'm gonna kiss him. You know, Wendy's gonna have some wild intermittent years. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so both of these both these act- actors are strong. They play their characters well. Yep. There's like little things that Jeremy Sumter does as Peter Pan that like makes him feel like a real little boy. Yeah. <laughs> like a like a little boy that is both trying to look brave and brash and strong, mm-hmm. but like every so often he'll do something like when he's caught off guard, he'll revert back to just being a little child, like an awkward little boy. Yeah, I think bravado, you said that earlier, is like the perfect word. Where it's just kind of like, uh, yeah, uh, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Feigned bravado. Right. Yeah. And he does that a lot where he'll, he'll constantly try to like recenter himself and, you know, become that strong Peter Pan that he, you know, wants to be, but he's, (laughs) he's a stupid little kid. And that Peter Pan (laughs) T-pose. He's always got his, his fists on his hips, you know, that classic Peter Pan pose. Yeah. And then, uh, Rachel Herdwood. Mm-hmm. Very good, Wendy. She like, is. She, she's the main character of the, the, the story, so they had to get a good little kid mm-hmm. actress. And I think that she, in the same way, um, uh, Sumter like puts that like tween boy energy in. She puts this like kind of well off, privileged hum- girl kind of thing, where she's just like, okay, bye. <laughs> and you're like, clearly she's interested, but she's like, yeah. I'm not going to give in to you. You're going to do what I want kind of thing. And I was like, oh, she plays it really well and isn't like simpering or like anything like that. Like it feels very honest, uh, that kind of like hot hold of young girls. Yeah. And she's got like charisma. I don't know. Yeah. You know, she's like, she's an affable little girl. Yeah. And she's so pretty. She's such a pretty little girl. I'm sure a lot of like, I didn't watch this movie, but I'm sure I would have had a little crush on, on little <laughs> Wendy back then. I bet. She's so pretty. Uh, and... We were we were joking about this. Uh, Jeremy Sumter is so good as Peter Pan. I was like, George, where George Lucas? Why didn't you hire him to be Anakin Skywalker? Yeah, no, both of us. It was not a joke. It was like that kid should have been Anakin Skywalker as as small Anakin. If he was not an actor at the time, that's a shame. Yeah, it, it, or if his agent did not put him in that room, yeah, his agent dropped the ball big so, time. Yeah, he would have like slayed. <laughs> He's, been great. He has Anakin vibes, and it 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 it, it easily transitions into Hayden Christensen. Yeah, yeah. Better I was like, Jake oh, that's Lloyd. the same person. Yeah, yeah like, Jake Lloyd. You know, didn't. respect to Jake Lloyd. You know, he's been through a lot, but yeah, this this kid here could have been a great Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I have some facts on like what Jeremy Sumter like his preparation for Peter Pan. Okay. This film, this Peter Pan film, was the first live action theatrical release to. Of Peter Pan mm-hmm. with a boy playing the part. Oh, yeah. Because, usually it's a, a woman. Right. The role is usually played by a woman, a tradition followed from the first film adaptation and the play mm-hmm. before it. So, you know, I think it works better in live action film is to have a little boy play it than a little girl. Yeah. Well, uh, or a woman. <laughs> yeah, because usually a fool Tilda Swinton. Yeah. <laughs> it's usually a fool Tilda Swinton. <laughs> I feel like if you're going to go camp, like if, if Tim Burton made Peter Pan, which... That sounds like something that's on the table, unfortunately. No, please. He'd cast friggin' yeah. He'd he'd cast Tilda Swinton or somebody to play Peter Pan. I say this with love, 
till this one's getting a little old to play Peter Pan. Fair enough. But that does not mean she is old or that she is not able to act. It's just like, eh, we're just gonna need, we're just gonna need like a, a Bobby Millie Brown. <laughs> <laughs> she could be a good Peter Pan, honestly. <laughs> Uh, Jeremy Sumter did nearly all of his stunts for the film himself. Oh, okay. We noticed we that. Noticed that, that was that. something when we were watching. Like, we were sitting here. was like, nah, that kid is not being switched out for uh, a small adult. That kid is is going sword to sword with that grown man. He's being pulled from his hair and thrown across. Like, that's full on that child. Yep. He, to prepare... He says he practiced sword fighting as much as five hours a day, as well as training in gymnastics and lifting weights. Oh, my gosh. Because I'm sure, you know, Peter Pan's got a good physique. He's constantly shirtless. So. That is a dedicated 14-year-old. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, good job. you know, they, they trained with harnesses because they had to simulate flying yeah. you know, on, a, on a blue screen. You know, right. Him, like, doing the harness stuff. And, mm-hmm. like, it all looks natural. It's him, really, you know. Yeah. Respect. I feel like if he was still doing acting, he should have been in Marvel. <laughs> he still is acting from what I saw. Like, you know, just like l- smaller roles. Yeah, that makes sense. Sumter grew several inches over the course of the film's production because he was a growing <laughs> young man. Uh, requiring staging tricks to retain Hook, Captain Hook's height advantage over Peter in their face-to-face scenes. That's adorable. Yeah, so. I love that. <laughs> and And a producer said that, quote, the window that Peter flies out of had to be enlarged twice. Oh my gosh. Because the magic of bodies growing. J- Jeremy Sumter just grew too big. Uh, that's great. I yeah. love that. Yeah. How long was the production time? Uh, September to May. Eight months. That's a lot of growing. growing Especially out of, as a 13, 14 year old. Yeah. yeah. That's oh. where all the prime growing happens. It was probably because he was like eating well and exercising. So his body was like, ah. Prime opportunity. That's the sound bodies make when they grow. (laughs) With some cracking. All right, who do you want to meet next? Mm, Teddy. Huh? There's a a teddy bear that's in the whole movie. How do you not know that? Uh, Let's meet her brothers. I don't have... I have one clip of Michael and John. Okay. And it is from later in the movie, after they've been caught by Captain Hook. But I liked this scene a lot. Big for your lives. Sons, my brother and I are English gentlemen. English gentlemen, do not beg. beg. Please! 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 Please don't kill! Please don't kill me! (laughs) Both these little wieners are begging for their lives. They're children! (laughs) So the the, the older brother... the one who's like, sir, we are English gentlemen. I was like, that that he's he's good. Yeah. That's a good that's a good delivery, good line. <laughs> yeah. So Michael and George, they're okay in my book, Pilgrim. It's Michael and John. Michael and John. What did I say? George. George and Ringo. You you do okay keep saying you keep saying George, and now I'm like, is George right? <laughs> I think George is a George Darling is the old the, the, the dad, dad, maybe. I think George is the dad. Like if you keep saying George, and I was like, Am I wrong? It just, says, it just says Mr. and Mrs. Darling. So John and Michael. John Michael. And George, Paul, John and Ringo. <laughs> I think you just want to say George Michael. <laughs> uh, George Michael. Yeah, that, that must be it. <laughs> anyway, they're good, but they don't have really, you know, there's there's, there's nothing, not a lot yeah, that they do. They are tag along brothers. Yeah. And so I don't know why they're included in the story, but 
probably Well, there's 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 an important uh thing that happens later on we'll talk about. That's fair. No, I just mean book-wise, but also I guess technically. Um to give Wendy like something that she's being torn between, you know, being as a young child with her brothers and then, you know, expected to grow up and become a woman. Yeah, I totally I get it. I get it. I get it. I've like I think when I my brain is like how would you would you, if you rewrote this like would you need the brothers and I think that like could you we're not talking about that right now we will get to stuff but um yeah they're kind of just there <laughs> yep. they don't do too much uh but we do have the darling specifically uh dad darling aka Captain Hook yeah so just like in the like it's a, this is a tradition for the plays mm. to basically cast the same actor to play Mr. Darling and Captain Hook, and mm-hmm. here those characters are played by Jason Isaacs, uh, who you pointed out plays who? Uh, Lucius Malfoy in Harry Potter's. Yes, in uh, Harry which Potter's. Which I was like that guy. <laughs> well, was, that that alone was me like that guy's a good actor. Yeah. Mr. Darling is like just a, a wiener. Yeah, He's a bumbling, awkward little man. Fool. Uh, and that is like, you know, a far cry from Lucius Malfoy, who's like a cool customer all mm-hmm. the whole time, you know, very like evil and threatening. Yeah. Well, I mean, you haven't seen all of it. So then I asked, is he going to play Captain Hook? And when they show Captain Hook, it's him, but it doesn't look like him at all. He's I was got, like, he looks like Jason Momoa. He's got a great wig. That wig was giving life, my guys. Yeah. I want that wig and it would not work for There's me. There's the wig and the goatee. Yeah. Yes. And the hook. <laughs> yeah, he 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 literally looks like Aquaman at the start of this movie. Yeah. When we get to Neverland. Oh, I got I got, I got a few clips about from Mr. Darling though. Mr. Darling had been practicing small talk all afternoon. I see. Nice weather. <laughs> and now his opportunity had arrived. Sir Edward Quiller Cooch, president of the bank, was a man who enjoyed small talk almost as much as a good balance sheet. So that's Mr. Darling's character. He, he doesn't even know how to uh, do small talk. Hi, Rod. Can it's you me. tell me how good you are at small Not talk? Not good. I don't rehearse like he does. Well, maybe I do, I guess, in my head sometimes. <laughs> Small talk's hard. It is. For us introverts. So, like, I don't want to make small talk. I would rather just be quiet and feel anxious over here while we're not talking. <laughs> this stuff really doesn't go anywhere other than that it, like, it's kind of a catalyst for one thing later on. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's just kind of a fun little character thing where Mr. Darling wants to progress in his career. And in mm. order to do that, he has to, you know, impress his boss or get close to his boss. Yeah. And he's, it- like, trying to talk about small talk with his boss. Yeah, and the reason he's trying to progress his career is because, uh, and this is part of the story, because we're talking about the characters, but an aunt has come to live with them uh, and has looked at Wendy and said, ah, she's a good marriage age. She's 11 or 12. Uh, and then, George, you have to get better in your job because who's going to marry a banker's wife, a banker's daughter? And he's literally like, ah, so I can wed my 12-year-old. <laughs> I need to do better in yeah. business. That character, by the way, is uh, Aunt Millicent. Mm. Uh, she is not in the book. No. She is not in the play. Ah. She's brand new for this movie. Ah. To give some Just oomph? Like, I don't know. Just, no, yeah. You know, just trying to serve as a catalyst. Catalyst, that's the word. For, her, for uh, Wendy's development. Okay. What happens is Mr. Darling is having a meeting with his boss, or he's like going to talk to his boss for the first time. Mm -hmm. And 
Wendy, through you know a series of little mishaps, uh, interrupts with she with their dog. Yeah. Like anyway, they're, they're at the bank, and Wendy is trying to stop a a teacher's note from reaching her dad. Yeah. And so she's chasing after the courier of the message with their dog. Yeah. And she runs into the bank with her giant uh, uh, Beethoven dog. <laughs> And knocks Mr. Darling down and makes a fool out of him. Yeah. And he's very mad about it. Right. I have been humiliated. No! I must become a man that children fear and adults respect. So we shall all end up in the street. George, not so loud. George, the neighbors will hear. Let them hear. Let the whole world know this is not a nurse. This is a dog. He, he snatches they, they, their Beethoven dog is wearing like a little nurse's hat. Yes, and then he rips it off, and they go, <gasps> oh. <laughs> "Like that was the worst thing he could possibly do." But that is Jason Isaac's like portrayal of Mister Darling, mm-hmm. and he's good at it. Yeah, like really good. Yeah, but then he's you know perhaps even better as Captain Hook. I think so. I liked him better as Mister Darling, but he 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 pulls off a pretty good Captain Hook. Why'd you like him better, Mister? Because he was simpering. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. Yeah. I just like his delivery on things. Yeah, but, fair. Uh, his his hook's good too. Mm. I was dreaming, me, of Pan, Pan Captain, and in my dream, I was a magnanimous fellow, full of forgiveness. I thanked Pan for cutting off my hand and for giving me this fine hook for disemboweling and ripping throats and other such homely uses. This combing I <coughs> So Pan did you a favor to get A favor? I threw my hand to a crocodile the beast liked it so much. It's followed me ever since, licking its lips for the rest of me. You call that a favor? No, 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 no. I, I was, t- we were talking when we watched it. I was like, how does he compare to Dustin Hoffman? Mm-hmm. I don't think he surpasses Dustin oh, Hoffman. I also don't movie. think he surpasses no, Dustin no, Hoffman. No, <laughs> 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 But he, he has the same energy where he's flamboyant. You know, but also like just kind of uh, unpredictable. Mm-hmm. He's a loose cannon. Pew, he's pew. Easily irritated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's gonna fly off the handle, and so he's very you know loud and quiet, loud and quiet, which I think is what Dustin Hoffman brought to the character a lot. Yeah, I agree. And then the Captain Hook in the cartoon is just kind of loud. Yeah, because it's cartoon, and right. he's a cartoon villain. But yeah, Jason Isaacs. I think he does an incredible job. Incredible job. Yeah. And, like, the physicality of it as well. So it's, like, flamboyant, but in such a way that it, like, fits the character. It's not necessarily, like, big to be big. It's, like, big to be yeah. hook. <laughs> and, again, this is the same actor who's also playing, like, a simpering little man. Yeah. In London. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I Jason Isaacs, I, I, I think, you know. Good job, dude. He's a good job. Yeah, it's a good job to that guy. Good job, sir. Uh, that's... It's like the main cast, honestly, you know, like yeah. there are some other smaller characters if you want to talk about those. People. We don't need to. But they like I know that we were talking about it like the, the child acting as a group, like groups of children can get annoying because you could think like, oh, they're just looking at each other, waiting for the line. Like you can see the pauses and the weirdness and how the cuts. But like these kids are just doing their lines, having conversations, hitting their marks. And they're like, it's it's 
worth mentioning. Yeah, I mean, all the Lost Boys are fun. You know, yeah. They, they, you know, you, you don't, they don't get a lot of screen time, at mm-hmm. least per, like, you know, individually, right? There's no Rufio, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, all the little, the little kids all are given a chance to shine. Yeah. I got one clip from Lost Boys, I guess. Wendy lady, for you we built this house with a door knocker and a chimney. Oh. Well, it is frightfully fascinating. But you see, I've had no real experience. Do you tell stories? Yes. Then you're perfect. Very well. I will do my best. There's like the little one who's very meek. Mm-hmm. You can't stories. So cute. So and tiny. Then there's like the leader of the Lost Boys. Not a Rufio. But, Slightly. Yeah, but he's, you know, it's like this little thin kid. His know, name is Slightly. <laughs> Slightly. Yeah. There's a Tuttles. There's he's, a he's Tuttles. Not, he's not an old little old man. He's not a lost his marbles. He's but. a little Lost Boy. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say the only like, and I don't know if I can call it like, oh, it's a bad actor. Like the only character that's just like, eh, is Tink. But, like, mm. it's literally a silent role that, you know, is mostly, like, away from the actual actress who's doing anything. It's just, like, a light flying around going, and when we're, like, up close to her, it's a lot of, like, overacting because that's the part. Not because she's a bad actress, but, like, that's the part. She so also looks separate from everyone else because she's clearly mm. filmed on a blue screen. Yeah. Away from everybody else. Yeah. But uh, interesting thing about that. I have no clips for Tinkerbell. Because it's just tinking sounds. Right. But according to Jason Isaacs, the filmmakers were so impressed with actress Ludivine Sonnier's performance and decided to abandon all of their plans to make Tinkerbell an entirely computer animated character. Oh. So she was going to be a CG character, which you dodged a bullet there, guys. <laughs> that would not have aged well. Not at all. <laughs> uh, well, good. I'm glad she got that work. Yeah. <laughs> it's better. It's a better than what we could have had. Yeah. I think she did a good job, but it was just kind of like, eh. She's very animated. Yeah, yeah like, she was very animated. And I think that was the, like, like, it works, but it's She'd be Tinkerbell. a great mime. Huh? Maybe she had some miming experience. Yeah. Yeah. True. Probably. She did do a good job. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically uh, the, the characters that yeah, we spent time with. Since we're talking about CG, I might as well just have that discussion right here. That is the worst part of this movie. Yeah. Is the special effects. Uh, this movie has aged so badly, <laughs> probably because it exists in the transition period. Just, we, so I thought you were ending your statement there. Probably because it exists. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. George Lucas ruined filmmaking for a while. Mm. Uh, we talked about it with Attack of the Clones. He uh, started to develop like virtual filmmaking techniques. Let's yeah. film everything. In a sound stage with blue screens, it'll be, it'll be perfect. We never have to go to use real sets again, and all of Hollywood tried that. And then everyone realized we we need some practicals in here, guys. Yeah, like, this, this this can't work. Yeah, it, everything has this weird lifeless sheen to it. For a while, they blamed the um, VHS uh, what the VFX artist, but it's not th- that's not the acronym. Visual effects. Yeah. Okay. For a while, they they blame the visual effects artists because they're like, you're not cleaning it up. It's like, you're not giving, you're not doing, stop. <laughs> if you're going to use special effects, you have to have a director that knows how to, you know, is, is shooting 
with special effects in mind. Or have the special effects director on site so that they can help you light the shots properly for what you're trying to get. Right. So the problem, there, there are so many problems visually with this movie. Like just off the bat, it's such an ugly movie to look at in so many places. And it has to do with color grading. Mm. It is so bleak and dark and colorless. Do you feel and like... It's, and it's not just because, you know, if it was like, you know, The Wizard of Oz, right? Black and white to color when, mm -hmm. you go to, when he goes to Oz. If it had been bleak and dark in London, which makes sense for the setting. And then they went to Neverland and it's just like colors off the wall. Everything, mm -hmm. Everything's colored. It's like, no, even in Neverland, it's there are scenes that are just bleak and dark and ugly mm -hmm. and gray. And you feel like it should be lighter because it's Neverland, because it's a child stuff? Just make it more visually interesting. It oh, looks okay, like visual okay. soup. I mean, I don't necessarily agree. It wasn't too soupy for me. Like, But I hear what you're saying. But also, I was like, uh, like maybe they were trying to do... Like, Peter Pan is this light, fluffy thing, but it honestly has, like, darker tones. And so they're, like, trying to reflect that in the lighting and stuff. You can disagree with me in the same way I disagree with you, sir. <laughs> and And then... Uh, that you know so that's just one look of it but like the problem mm -hmm. is yeah it's clear they filmed the sound stages Agreed. the whole time so the characters just look like they're not where they're supposed to be right yeah. they're not, they're supposed to, oh we're on a forest we're on a pirate ship we're, mm -hmm. we're in the clouds it's like no you look like you're standing at a blue sound stage yeah there were scenes on the pirate ship where you could see the the blue outline in captain hook's hair mm -hmm. like they didn't even like crop them out very well fantastic wig i think like i think i agree with you in this in that like there were things that when like the clouds part specifically when they're like spying on the jolly roger the clouds are beautiful i think they're so pretty and like nicely yeah, that, like they're true. painterly and stuff but it's the interaction points that are just like this just doesn't uh, and then, like, if if how they interacted with everything in this world on this downstage was kind of like, hey, these are very real people and very obviously, like, colorful, painterly things in kind of the skew of, like, Roger Rabbit, I'd be like, okay, that's how it's supposed to be. Like, yeah. they are literally two different elements and I can just, like, delete my, that from my brain and, like, left. But it's not like that all the time. So it's just kind of jarring where it's, like, there's stuff that's, like, that's clearly two different elements and you did not, you did not together them well the pr yeah so the thing that made roger rabbit so successful is that robert Zemeckis, when he filmed it knew that if we wanted it to look real we had to have real interactions between roger rabbit the cartoon mm -hmm. and the world around him yes so they created these weird practical like mm -hmm. effects and, and you know animatronics and things so that when roger rabbit would move something it would move in real life. Right, right, it's right. It's like a little robot. Yeah. Know? They had like a robot arm that was like controlling a cigar. Yeah. And stuff like that. In this movie, there's none of that. It's all pantomime and it looks fake as heck. Yeah. It, it's like, it's not to the extent with like Star Wars where, you know, Samuel Jackson, what am I looking at, George? Well, you're looking at a big monster. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, how big is it? It's real big. <laughs> Great. <laughs> you know, it's not that bad. I, there's a CG crocodile in the movie. Mm. Uh, and I feel like, you know, it doesn't really like the characters don't interact with that mm -hmm. too often. Yeah. But just in general, like you can tell sometimes the kids like they don't know what they're looking at. Yeah. They're just like, where are we? Yeah. What are we doing? Yeah. True. You know, even out in London, it's like it's just fake. Like yeah. they're, they're on like a simulated London street somewhere mm -hmm. and it just looks like a CG 
environment and they're yeah. standing on a blue screen. Fair. And the blue screen, they, they really over rely on that thing mm-hmm. to the point where it just seems ridiculous. So this happens quite a few times where a, a character in the foreground is obviously just being filmed in front of a blue screen and then composited over another shot from late from filmed elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. And that character is in focus and the characters behind them are also in focus. Yeah. That's not how cameras work. So it's, it's clearly fake. <laughs> and you're like. It's like, I know Wendy's not in the room with those people back there. Yeah. She's just standing in front of a blue screen. I you know, it's like rear view pro- re- projection from yeah, the old yeah, days. Yeah. And one of the worst times was in the scene where she runs into the bank to interrupt her father with the dog, right? Mm-hmm. Wendy is in the foreground, supposed to be running to her dad because mm-hmm. her dad, she's trying to stop her dad from getting a letter. And in the background, the doors to the bank open and Beethoven the dog runs in, <laughs> right? Both one, both are in focus, and I was like, "Yo, Wendy's in front of a green screen." But Wendy's also running to her dad, mm-hmm. so the young actress is just running in place, running in place in front of a blue screen, and it looks like something from a cult, like or like a high school, uh, a, like film student production, <laughs> right? It looks like something we would have done in high school. Yeah, like if we got a green screen for the first time, like play around with it, like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, just run in place. You know what it looks like? It looks like freaking Neil Breen movies. Oh gosh, no, that's that's the same. Method. No. It's pretend you're running and doing an action scene in front of a blue screen in place, not really moving, and we'll make it look... No, it looks ridiculous. Laughable. Yeah. Not the best. Amateurish. (laughs) Wow, just tearing down. Um, It's horrible. Yeah. And and none of the effects have aged well. Like, that's that's just the nature of the time. Yeah, that's fair. But that's the thing. This is the same year as, like, Return of the King, Mm -hmm. which has not... Like, the effects in that movie... Maybe a few tiny things. That movie still looks good today. Yeah, they had a higher budget, but and all- I think and I think uh, Peter Jackson had a better mind for that's, special effects. That's fair. And then it's also so many practicals. And they blended practical and digital. Yeah, right? this movie relied so much on digital because it seemed like you know, oh, we can get away with anything. It's yeah, like, no man. One, those visual effects are going to age poorly over time. Well, they didn't know that. They didn't know that, but <laughs> it happened. Yeah. And they did not blend the physical and the digital to the extent where, you know. Agreed. So it's horrible. In the Some of the best special effects in the movie deal with uh, the flight stuff, right? And I mm-hmm. think they, they had a lot of time because that was probably important to the story. So yeah. that was given priority. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So they had the actors in harnesses. You know, wires pretending to fly, right? Mm-hmm. And you could tell that they all trained. And uh, the effects, especially as, like, Peter Pan is, like, flying in the the the, the room with Wendy and her brothers, you know, and teaching right, them right. to fly. Yeah. That stuff looks pretty good. There are some no, times yeah. when, like, some, like the scale is weird. Where yeah, Peter when he's, Pan, like, flying against the ceiling and he's going way too long. Yeah, I was like... <laughs> <laughs> it's like he he's he turns into a, a tiny person mm-hmm. you know the scale is off yeah you know, and that's just funny looking but overall the flight stuff looks pretty decent mm-hmm. until they fly out the window oh yeah and they f- can you describe that sequence what happens they fly through london and they get real small and, and they do i don't know it was just bad i don't remember what it was there's clouds there how did they, they get go to, to the space Oh, when they break the atmosphere and you see planets. They're like flying through this like what I could best describe as like magic school bus style 
galaxy. Yeah. With cartoony planets everywhere. Yeah. And it looks really stupid. I'm sure they were trying, oh, you know, like, let's make it fanciful. Yeah, it, it's like when you see that, and that's right as you're going into Neverland, you expect when you get to Neverland, everything to be colored this way and poppy and very cartoony, and it's just not. So it's a weird, like, middle bit. It's a weird in-between where yeah. it goes from, like, bleak London to just this crazy looking like psychedelic mm. space environment to Neverland that is somewhere in between. Yeah. But the funny thing is there is a shot where all of the actors, all the little kids who are flying through space are all digital doubles. Oh yeah. It looks so it's bad. It's really bad. It's like, oh yeah, these are all like, just like oh <laughs> look at all these PS2 characters flying yeah, through space. Yeah. Yeah, it was not good. <laughs> it reminds me of the burly brawl scene in The Matrix Reloaded, which mm. involved digital doubles of Keanu Reeves and the guy who plays Agent Smith. Is that the one where he's like dodging bullets? No, no, no. They're they're he's fighting like a bunch of Agent Smiths oh, yeah, in, a, yeah, in yeah. an alleyway. Yeah. And there's a point where it's just CG characters fighting and it looks yeah. ridiculous. And it, it's like some of that stuff has aged so bad. And mm -hmm. this scene in Peter Pan. Yeah. Really bad. It's really not good. Really good. So. Really not good. Hmm. I, I just want to complain about that stuff because it's the worst part of the movie. It's really distracting. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, that's what dates the movie. Yeah. You know, for what should be a timeless tale. Do you think they're going to use a bunch of CG? And yes, <laughs> they're going to use the freaking Mandalorian set this time. Okay, but I like okay if that that can be done really really well. It could like in Mandalorian for the most part, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. Yeah. So cool. Yeah, we'll see how that turns out. But anyway, we we can talk some themes of this film. Themes. Know, talk about talk about Peter Pan, how it achieves the themes of the novel. Because I feel like the main theme of the novel is loss of innocence, right? Fear of growing up. Mm. Fear of responsibility and you know uh, uh, negotiating the transition. From yeah, I think transitioning more than anything else, like the stark differences between. Uh, Peter, this boy who remains a boy forever, the darlings who are adults and want their children to push on, and then the children that are in this liminal space. Did I use that word right? Liminal? So, yeah, let's talk about it for Wendy. Because Wendy's the main character of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's the one who has to confront growing up. Yeah. And Peter Pan is kind of like the escapist fantasy for Wendy. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, hey, this is a little boy that never grew up. You could be just like him. Yeah. Because you're afraid of growing up. Yeah, I think I like how this movie what is it like how this movie um kind of positions this theme to like take off to cat to catalyze what we had talked about with the ant coming yep i have i have that clip so wendy this little girl playing with her brothers they pretend pirates mm -hmm. and that's how the movie starts is like her clearly like you know a little tomboy who is having fun with the little brothers and her mm -hmm. little brothers are children and yeah. she's a child and then her Aunt Millicent comes to visit and uh, shakes things up a little bit because when Wendy's getting a little old. My unfulfilled ambition is to write a great novel in three parts about my adventures. What adventures? I've yet to have them, but they will be perfectly thrilling. But child, novelists are not highly thought of in good society. And there is nothing so difficult to marry as a novelist. Marry? Marry. Marry. But aunt, Wendy is not yet 13. Walk toward me, dear, that I may appraise you. Appraise you. Appraise. Yep. Ugh. All the language in the scene is like icky. <laughs> uh, also, uh, personally offended. 
like novelists novelists are not highly sought after i'm like shut up i'm gonna write <laughs> let me re write my three-part novels about how i went out and lived a great life how dare you um ugh. anyway uh, yeah, so this is the the thing that like kind of kicks off, and she like walks towards her aunt, and her aunt's like, oh, "I see it. It's a it's a hidden kiss." You want to play that? Sure. Have you not noticed? Observe her mouth. There, hidden in the right hand corner. Is that a kiss? <gasps> a kiss. My mother's kiss. A hidden kiss. What is it for? It is for the greatest adventure of all. They that find it have slipped in and out of heaven. Find what? The one the kiss belongs to. My Wendy. A woman. Almost a woman. Good job correcting. I think this is really interesting because it's like at first the parents are like, what <laughs> what and then oh yes i think the mom is still a little bit like not on board like she's a child yeah stop mr darling is easily swayed by easily everybody. swayed <laughs> and i think that that's one it, i think it's framed really well in this kind of like things that make perfect sense to adults but like children are like what you know like you're sitting here and being very confused as to like why we're having this conversation, one in front of children, two being serious about it. Uh, and it's just this kind of like by having this conversation at all with Wendy is kind of like letting her know that she is about to be inducted into this world of adults, that her time as a child is quickly coming to an end. Yeah, it's it's two things. It's like one, this scene presents a fear of what's ahead. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, oh, no there's a burden being placed on me. Like mm -hmm. there's a responsibility being placed on me that I did not anticipate. Yeah. And I'm afraid of it. Yeah. And then the very next scene, Wendy, this is a scene where Wendy is eavesdropping on her parents mm -hmm. and her aunt Millicent. And this presents a fear of losing your childhood. Right. You know what you're going to leave behind. She must spend less time with her brothers and more time with me. She must have her own room. True. A young lady's room. George, the daughter of a clerk, cannot hope to marry as well as that of a manager. You must attend more parties, make small talk with your superiors at the bank. Wit is very fashionable at the moment. Wit. <laughs> Mr. Darling has to step up too, but yeah, it's like she needs to spend less time with her brothers. Which, from the very first scene, that's what she does, is plays pirates with her brothers. Yeah. I think that it's this interesting kind of, like, quick reframing of a young person's mind of, like, when you're growing up, you can be anything you want, sweetie. Yeah. Use your imagination. Do these things. You, whatever you hope to be. But then, like, as a t certain time comes on, we start going, yeah, but not anything. Yeah, but there are still roles that you need to fit into. And so we're going to do this. I think, like, to the a small credit to George at the very least, like, uh, and even to the aunt, that she isn't necessarily like, okay, we just need to marry her out for the good of the family. She is saying, like, hey, she is a woman in the, what is this, the 20s, 40s? Yeah, it's like the 1900s. Yeah, like 1900s. The She's not going to be able to do anything without a husband. 
And to protect her, you need to have a better job so she can be in a better marriage so that she can be set up. We don't have to worry about the boys. The boys are going to need to do their own jobs and do whatever they are. Like, she cannot protect herself. She can do nothing for herself. You need to be better as a father and a provider so that she can be set up for a future. That is your job since you had a daughter. And I think, like there is like and that he's willing that he's like oh my gosh i have to do better the fact that that is his thought process and he is actually thinking about the, the health and well-being of his child in her future is a thumbs up yeah for the time but like when we're actively thinking about it right like we're thinking about these roles that are are going to now be pushed on this young girl uh, and then also pushed on her brothers, right? Like in that, like you no longer have as much as like they had a dog that was Nana and obviously their mom doesn't work. <laughs> she works from home uh, or is a house mother and whatever. Like she raised them probably. They're well off enough to, or they're not so well off that like she could hire an actual nurse to come in and like help her out with stuff. So she was doing that. Um, but like Wendy spends all her times with her brother. So she is, in fact, a caretaker of her brothers. Yes. Uh, and to remove her from that situation, to have her now start growing up with different standards and different things, and then start the boys will be boys training for the boys, is going to fully affect, you know, like absolutely affect this kind of relationship and this kind of like blase talk and expectation that is um, – pressed on these children and like that's what you're seeing in these scenes Uh, by the way i think we're going to call this early edwardian london (laughs) (laughs) i think that's that's the correct term for it early edwardian yeah okay king edward had just uh risen had just edwarded yeah (laughs) uh um i think that this is the universal like appeal of the original peter pan story probably because Mm -hmm. i've never read it but i have a feeling I really like the novel more than I like the film adaptations mm-hmm. because I feel like a lot of this dialogue, a lot of this story, a lot of like the scenes it presents is is very novelistic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why this story continues to resonate, continues to resonate with you know generations because everyone goes through this right this point where you are at crossroads where you can choose to try to like, you know, hold on to your childhood and that innocence that you have, but the world is pushing you into, you know, another role. Yeah. You know, the role is expected of you as, as an adult, Mm -hmm. right. And everything from like your relationship with your siblings and your family to like how you navigate the world, like what your expectations are, what your goals and dreams are. Mm -hmm. Like everything changes when you become an adult. Right. And that's the fear. Like there's fear and there's, uncertainty and there's uh kind of a resentment or like a resistance mm-hmm. all of that stuff is presented in peter pan and it's done so in kind of like a fanciful way yeah yeah Ugh. and peter pan the boy the the character represents that childhood that you don't want to give up mm-hmm. right and i think something that this movie does well and i'm pretty sure the book does extremely well is peter pan is both a an ideal, right? Like he is the ideal child in all of us that we cling on to, right? But mm-hmm. it's also like this dangerous piece of yourself. Like if you if you just stay a child forever, you know that that's folly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah let's, let's hear Peter Pan talk about growing up. How old are you, Peter? Quite young. Don't you know? 
I ran away. One night, I heard my mother and father talking of what I was to be when I became a man. So, I ran away to Kensington Gardens. And I met Tink. Tink? Tinkerbell. She's my fairy. So, you know, he ran away when people were talking about what he was to become when he became a man. Mm -hmm. And that scared him, so he ran away, right? Yeah. And I feel like that is a... You know, maybe a natural response for someone to do when confronted with that stuff. You mm -hmm. know, it's like a little kid will sometimes want to run away and escape and just be a little boy forever. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when you like actively are able to see what adulthood really is. Yeah. You know, you're like, I don't want that. But then, you know, we get children. Like we know, we all know people that are just like adult children and it's not cute. <laughs> no, and it's. That's, I think, the, the the point of the novel is Wendy is taken to Neverland because she is indulging mm -hmm. in the childhood she doesn't want to lose. Yeah. Right? But the nightmare of Neverland is that it is sweet and fun and, you know, just carefree until it's not. Yeah. And then it just, like, you know, as you grow up, it's like, oh, like, that, I guess I, you know, being a child forever is not healthy. Or, no. you know, it's it's actually kind of. Just pitiful and sad. Yeah. And I think like we have these conversations or at least I do with my friends all the time when sometimes they're like, oh, I wish I could be young again. Like, I wish I could just be a kid. I was like, oh, no, <laughs> like there's nothing about like when I look back at childhood that I'm like, oh, I want like, yeah, OK, you don't have to pay bills, but you still have to like you still live in the world and have laws that you've got to uh, follow. Even if you're just a child, you still got rule. You're living with someone. And it's their rules, you know, like you don't have control over what you're eating, what you're buying, like what you spend your time. You have to go back to school. Like there's lots of stuff that I'm just like, nah, as as hard as adulthood is. And it is very, very hard. I wouldn't trade it for childhood. Yeah, there's a there's a good scene later on in the movie. Like this is where like the story kind of shifts, you know, and it kind of goes into maybe the second act, I guess. Mm -hmm. The third act. Peter. <sighs> fun, don't we? I taught you to fight and to fly. What more could there be? There is so much more. What? What else is there? I don't know. I think it becomes clearer when you grow up. Well, I will not grow up. You cannot make me. I'll banish you like Tinkerbell. I will not be banished. Then go home. Go home and grow up. And take your feelings with you. Peter! Peter, come back! Peter! They're really good at this. <laughs> they are. But that's the thing about like, this is the point where you realize like, oh, you know, clinging onto your childhood and not growing up, like you lose out on like some like fulfillment, you know, yeah. like, there's, there's a fullness that you get when you become an adult. Like obviously like here we're talking about feelings because mm -hmm. like this scene, the lead up is what Wendy's saying. Like, don't you feel anything? Mm -hmm. Like, don't you have like, don't you feel like love or yeah. uh, ang you know, and like his, his answers to those are like very childish. Uh, you inherently childish mm -hmm. but you know like they're they're not nuanced there's no f range it's like yeah. they're very simple answers to mm -hmm. simple things and like there's no you know breadth of emotion there's no you know what like I, when it, when someone becomes an adult there is an emotional development that happens mm -hmm. that you know you just miss out on if you don't confront the world yeah that's like that's like the whole scene of uh the whole thing of that that Pixar movie inside out mm -hmm. you know at the end you realize like Emotion, there, you know, there's no simple set of emotions like experience mm -hmm. is 
combinations of of emotions. Yeah. Right? Sadness mixed with joy. Yeah. I think like especially like the age that Peter Pan is trapped at, you know, is like the age when all your hormone hormones are like giving you new emotions. Lots of new things are happening to you them. and he's just stuck there in that space forever not being like everything is very simple because like I'm just mad. Like no, you're hurt, sweetie. You're hurt. Like, no, I'm mad. Like, okay, you can be both. And it stems from something, you know? And even in in that, like, like obviously, Wendy is not grown, but she lives in a world where she interacts with adults and is able to, like, come to these places where you're able to work through these things. That being said, right? Like, you said, um, like, there's a fullness that comes with being an adult. And I, my brain was like, oh, man, but there's also an emptiness, but, you yeah, know? Yeah. But I think but that, that's, like... That's the nature. Of yeah, that's the nature of things, right? Like, and it's it's the trade-off, but you can't be afraid. You can. But I think people who choose to, like, fear that emptiness especially like when you're a kid and you look at adults especially in this capitalist world where you're just like what's the point sometimes me as a 33 year old lady i'm 34 as a 34 year old lady like i look at other people that i consider adults because i'm most days don't consider myself an adult and i'm like wow that looks hard i don't want to do that like sometimes i'll look at myself like what i'm doing is hard and i don't want to keep doing that want to talk about your 401k oh no gosh <laughs> no no, I'm a child again. And like, like it's overwhelming, but like I have the ability to work through these things and ignore the things that I want to. And that's the child in me that, you know, this kind of thing. That's the thing. The thing that like Peter doesn't get because of his fear that like the child in you doesn't die. Like the child in you doesn't go away just because you become an adult. There are so many childish things about us. Like you and I, we have childish fights sometimes, right? Like I have childish reactions to stuff. So like sometimes I talk through them with you. I was like, I just want to be petty and do X, Y, and Z. And you're like, you can't do that. And I was like, I know. I just want to be. And I need to vocalize it because if it stays inside of me, I'm going to like, you know. And I think that that's the thing that this um, the story like kind of hits, uh, but also doesn't like fully... And actually, at some points, does address, right? Like, you see uh, when Wendy decides that, like, I'm leaving, like, I'm going home, I'm taking my brothers, and I'm going to go. You see that kind of thing where she's just, like, that ch in that childish space where she's like, well, I'm a pirate. Fight me. And then is like, I'm mad. And then says some petty, rude things. And then is like, we're just going to go home. Like, I'm not going to do this. And seeing her, like, work through those those things of, like, she's mad, she's hurt, she's lashing out, and then she stops and she's like, how do I fix this? I need to move myself out of this space. Like, yeah. as, as much as that also saddens me. And, like, watching through these pieces as she approaches adulthood without being told what she needs to do. She is putting herself in the spaces that she wants to be rather than... Um, this kind of like, well, this is what you're going to be. And I think that that's, that's the thing that Peter never really sees that like, you can be the adult you want to be, but you do need to be an adult. Yeah. And I, th that's the whole, uh, you know, character arc of Wendy Darling is mm -hmm. like trying to escape, trying to resist growing up and then halfway through realizing that not growing up is going to it's going to stunt your growth. You yeah. know, it's like it's it's not healthy or, or possible. And you're not fun to be around. Yeah. You're just not. You're, yeah, it's true. And it's it, it, that's the way it goes. I feel like we've all had that experience maybe like where <laughs> I feel like you experience that every couple five, maybe every five years or so, you know, you're mm. maybe until, you know, once you're once you're 20, it kind of changes. But like 
you hang out with people who are a little younger than you, a little bit more immature than you, right? And then you reach a point where you're maturing and they're not. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, I need to get away from these people. Yeah. You know, like not in a bad way, but it's like you need to se- you need to separate yourself from people who are going to hold you back. Yeah. Mature, maturity wise. Yeah. Um, and also I was going to say, like, I think P- the Peter Pan story really benefits from taking place in an early Edwardian era mm-hmm. because that society was really rigid. Yeah. You know, and and it was all about status and, you know, responsibilities and, and everything like that. So it really shines a light more so than other eras about how, you know, the stark contrast between child and adult. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like in that society is when you're considered an adult, that's when things that's when responsibilities really start to take hold. Like yeah. Hardcore. Yeah. And there's a lot of expectations on adults in that society so quick yeah yeah so that's yeah it's it this for all all of this movie's faults like it does a i assume a good job presenting the themes of the book in a way that is you know palatable understandable Mm -hmm. and like faithful yeah so like i i do appreciate that you know Mm -hmm. and i think that's when they said hey we want to make a a a movie that's faithful to the book Mm -hmm. i think they did it yeah as far as presenting the themes you know Mm -hmm. And the writing and stuff. Also, there are there were definitely some weird moments, which I was like, "What's that in the book?" Where like when Wendy is like getting to this place where she's just frustrated with Peter, and she's like, "Captain Hook is a real man," and I was like, "Stop! I don't, you're he is forty years your senior. I don't like it." Well, that's the thing. I think <laughs> Peter Pan is just another. I think Captain Hook is just another side of that immaturity. It's yeah. Like, he's a grown man who is also acting like a child. Like, yeah. That's the thing. All of the pirates on Captain Hook's crew, they're all just adult children. Yeah. And they are also stunted emotionally. Mm-hmm. Like, they... I, maybe I have it. Hold on. It's like where... Like, do you tell stories, Wendy? Like, the pirates say mm-hmm. that. Didst thou ever want to be a pirate, my hearty? I once thought of... Calling myself mm-hmm. Red Handed Jill. Oh, what a marvelous name! That's what we call you if you join us. But what should my duties be? I could not be expected to pillage. Do you, um, by any chance, tell stories? She's reading to all these adult men mm-hmm. a story, like a you know fairy tale. But that's the thing. It's like. Captain Hook also is a, you know, showing Wendy what it's like to just be stunted yeah. in your development. You yeah. Know? Like, Captain Hook, he his his entire life, at like, you know, in Neverland is, like, listless. Mm-hmm. He has no purpose there other than to fight Peter Pan. Yeah. That's it. I think That's him it. and Peter Pan together are that element of childhood that you cling on to. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. No notes. He has nothing. Peter Pan, uh, Captain Hook, he has nothing to live for. Yeah. Other than Peter Pan, mm-hmm. which is like horrible. It's like he's he's the he's the, the the adult who had who lives for nothing but like indulging in his you know his basest you know uh, desires, mm-hmm. like clinging onto adult uh, childhood. Right? Yeah. It's like we we've met man children before. You yeah. Know? Like it's like I don't want to do anything that challenges me. I, I just want to deal with the same same things I was dealing with as a child. Yeah. And anything Let outside of that Let me live in go- my parents' house and play video games all day. Yeah. 
And it's not just video games, but like, I know that's that's the cliche, but we do know those, those people who are just kind of like, even though they're like, okay, yeah, they're in a job, they're doing something. It's still like, you're, you're talking like a high schooler. Yeah. Like you're like stuck on, like your opinions have no nuance. You're not willing to be, like you're saying, challenged to have a conversation about something. It's just like, no, 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 no. It's, it's like, okay, <laughs> bye. Yeah. You're in the, yeah. So that that's, I think that's one way, one reading of Captain Hook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think this movie does a good job of. Yeah. Another thing about this movie uh, that I think was noteworthy is because it's a live action adaptation of the book. Mm-hmm. You are using real people in, you know, real looking environments, <laughs> but it, it really is. It's, it's real people on the screen. It, uh, it does, it accentuates, it emphasizes kind of the darker elements of the Peter Pan story. Yeah. Like it really hammers at home when they're actually real children in these situations. Mm-hmm. Um, the earliest on, and I think this set the stage for a lot of what I was noticing is, uh. The first thing Peter Pan does when he shows up at Wendy's room, shows mm-hmm. up in her room, is lose his shadow. Right? Yeah. That, that's, that's, and it happens in all of the Peter Pan stories. Mm-hmm. Is Peter Pan loses his shadow, and his shadow's like, you know, being a mischief maker in the room. And what Wendy offers to do for Peter in order to get his, his, sta- his shadow back on is to sew the shadow to his foot. Yeah. And you see a human being sewing a a shadow to another human being's foot and it's kind of grotesque yeah i mean obviously you don't see blood or anything but like uh it's hard to when it's just a cartoon Mm -hmm. you don't think about how like oh that's kind of grotesque and they also put it on shoes in the cartoon these are just straight out toes yeah (laughs) so that i think is a good example of how the whole movie does stuff like this where Mm -hmm. they show you verbatim what happens in the book you know what's what's been passed on in the story for generations but because it's real people on screen it's kind of gross and weird and Mm -hmm. uh off-putting yeah i think even in that kind of thing one of the first things peter does when he gets back to the lost boys he's like i've bought us a storyteller and they're like they they show the lost boys show that they shot uh windy down he um, literally, he's like, whose arrow is this? And like one of them was, it's mine. And like literally like turns his neck to be stabbed to death. And everybody else is just watching. Like, yep, this is right. You killed her. We, like, this is going to be straight up murder. Like, this is not, oh, we're playing with swords. Like, had had Wendy not like taken a breath, like that child's blood would have been spilt in those grounds. And that's just, that's just. It, that's, it's freaking Lord of the Fly stuff. Yeah. You know, and I think that shows the the there's a there's a fear of children sometimes like children are without order without laws without inhibition without uh i don't know just anything if i listen back to this episode and i don't hear my chems teenagers play right now when you said there's a fear of children we're going to have a real these aren't fight. even teenagers i don't teenagers care scare the living crap out of me but you know <laughs> peter pan scares the the living daylights out. yeah out it's like it's just Children are scary. Children yeah. are. They are they are they are pure id and that's terrifying. Yeah. Um and then especially like in this kind of like there are no adults and the only adults that are around here are actively trying to kill us. So killing is fine. Like, you know? It's like um 
well, Lord of the Flies is scary, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, yeah, these these children are are they're they're animals, right? They yeah, tribalistic mm-hmm. animals. Um, it remind I was listening to a podcast. They were talking about the movie. Honey, I Blew Up the Kid mm-hmm. is a movie about, uh, it's a sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah. But it's about the scientist turns his toddler into a giant being, right? Like the toddler gets bigger and Godzilla bigger. Godzilla size. Godzilla size. But the problem is like when you really think about it, this podcasters we're talking about, like, listen, that is probably the most terrifying thing in the world. A giant toddler, a toddler, yeah. toddler that is bigger than you. Yeah. Think about how a toddler just destroys everything. Like, just just has no regard. Mm-hmm. So if that toddler had any type of real strength or power over anything, it's horrifying. Yeah. So that's what Peter Pan and the Lost Boys are. They're horrifying. People would go in that person, that cat, kid's mouth. Kids, ah, it would be Attack on Titan. Yeah. Yeah. That That's <laughs> for real. <laughs> but Peter Pan's the same way. It's like these little kids, they're horrifying. Yeah, and I think on a some level, and I think even just like the world they live in, right? Where where we're like, oh yeah, we're away to Neverland. It's a land of adventures. The first thing is like, mermaids will sweetly drown you if you get too close. And you're like, okay, an adult didn't tell them that. So how did these kids learn by trial and error, watching their friends get drowned? Right? Like, uh, there are other adults with families. On the, there's a tribe. On in Neverland, and those are not lost children. Those are children who grow up with family. So they're there are family units. There are good and happy family units that you can see in this place. And these boys don't have that. They're choosing not to do that. And they're like running wild with no rules or stuff. You know, just in general, there's pirates. There's uh, weather that is controlled by the presence of a a boy deity named Pan. You know, like there's crocodiles that hunger for flesh. And I think when you really sit here and you're just kind of like, yeah, Neverland, it's great. You're just like, mm. No, <laughs> there's, there's an inherent grimness to Peter Pan that like when you look at it with adult eyes, you're like, oh, yeah, this, this is horrible, horrible. Yeah, like, like, I would never want to live here. No, it's a dangerous world um, it, with full of dangerous children. And uh, a few other creepy things that I think the movie as a live action film uh, ex- uh, emphasizes. Uh, right. When when Peter when Peter shows up at Wendy's uh, window, goes inside, you know, he's just kind of a creeper. Mm-hmm. Remember you, you, you had problems with that. Yeah, it was like, oh, this is where Stephanie Myers got it. Like the Twilight Lady. I like even like one of the re- the reasons she gets in trouble uh, in school is because in- instead of like paying attention to whatever the teacher's saying, she's drawing a picture of her in bed and a man hovering over her, um, and it's just this kind of like the innocence of it- it's scary. Because if you make something like it's that, oh, we should, no, we're not going to post that. It's this thing where if you tell children something's a little magical or a little crazy and cool, they're like, oh, that's cool. A man coming into your window. And if he's like, I got here by fairy dust, come with me, little girl. And you're like, oh my gosh, so cool. And away they go. You know, like yeah. it makes me think of that thing that we randomly came across on YouTube that, um, that, I think it's uh, a New Zealand show that has it's either New Zealand or Australian where like parents it's parent control, parental control where parents are like, 
sitting and watching oh, their yeah, kids go through tests yeah, and they have a sh- pre- like the, yeah they, they had they like a whole sh- a child predator coming in yeah with like nannies away. there to protect them and the nannies were in the know and there's cameras everywhere and they just send a guy up with like candy and puppies and it's like oh do you want to and just test to see if how the parents are parenting the kids go or not and most of the children went and that you know like and it's that's horrifying, yeah. terrifying that's terrifying and like what this presents is there's a man in your room and he says he can fly. Come out the window. Like, no. Just no. I almost got that clip, too. It's like, if that's you in your bed, then who is that? A boy? It's like, it's a right? Weird. Yeah. And it definitely gave me Edward Cullen vibes. <laughs> uh, and also, carrying on that, that thing, it's like Peter Pan, on a literal level, on paper, like, if you really take a step back and look at it, uh, Peter Pan is like freaking like two steps from a horror movie yeah. monster. Yeah. Like there's this. So I guess the rules of the world are if you're in Neverland for more than seven days and your parents forget you, uh, you're there forever. Mm. Or, or, you know, you can't go back. Right. Or, or something. Right. I guess. That's what it seems like. Because so Peter and Wendy have their little fight. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's like, I don't want to grow up. You know, Peter does not want Wendy to leave. Mm-hmm. So he flies back. To London mm-hmm. and attempts to close their bedroom window so that her parents will forget her. Yeah, and give up on the yeah, wanting the children. I have that. Peter did not want Wendy to leave. Once again, he visited Wendy's home to see if Mr. and Mrs. Darling had closed the window yet. But as before, he saw Mrs. Darling in her chair by the window her eyes tired with searching the heavens. And, and, and Peter then has like a, 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 a fight mm-hmm. with Mrs. Darling as he's trying to close the window and she's trying to hold it open. Yeah. And on a, on a figurative level, Peter Pan is just that, you know, that thing that's clinging to your childhood, right? Mm-hmm. You know, whatever, clinging to that innocence. But on a literal level, it's kind of just like this horrible, like mythical creature, like, Basically trying to keep his 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 captives. Yeah. It's kidnapping. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very much like also like hearing you say seven days um is the like it's like Fay rules where it's just kind of like you are now ours, you don't get to leave. Like yeah. uh I talked about this when we watched it. Um, but like there's a book that came out in like I think two thousand nine uh, by Brom called The Child Thief, which is just a retelling of Peter Pan. Uh, and I tried to read it in 2009. Uh, my, me and my friend tried read it. She read it and finished it and liked it. I got like three or four chapters in and I was like, I hate this uh, for a number of reasons. But I tried to reread it for this. Uh, like I was listening to it on tape and I just couldn't do it uh, for a number of reasons. But the 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 idea, the idea of it, the premise of it just kind of like Peter this pan character going into our world to steal children for his war, you know? And, and that's, that's what it is, right? Like, because what, what else is there to do in, in Neverland, but fight, right? Like that's it. You're like, Oh, you're running, you're flying around and stuff. But like, there's this constant threat of like danger and war, right? Like you can be killed by like everything, pirates, mermaids, like food, probably fair. Like you can, it's just, and this is the world that you're like, oh, yeah, let me take this girl into. Let me take yeah. the blah, blah, blah. Like, and it, it the, 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 the premise of itself. Yeah. Like, it's very, what was it? It feels very like the Pinocchio. I think we had said that as well. The, yep. like, world in which 
everything seems honky dory, but you turn into a donkey. Like, yeah. 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 Well, the, speaking of uh, the donkey scene in Peter Pan, right? Mm -hmm. uh, where he goes to uh, Pleasure Island and everyone becomes a donkey. Like, <laughs> e even in the Disney movie from, mm -hmm. you know, 1940, it's kind of creepy, grotesque, kind of horrifying, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the imagery and, like, I think of the movie, was it JTT? Jonathan Taylor Thomas did a Pinocchio once. I think so. Yeah, they yeah, yeah. Ride a, an, they ride a roller coaster and they turn into donkeys. And I remember even as a little kid, that was the scariest thing I've ever seen. It's so scary. But there was a scene in this movie that gave me similar vibes, not like visually creepy, but like the idea of it. Mm -hmm. So Wendy and the Lost Boys and her brothers are having dinner. They're, they're eating their imaginary fruit. <laughs> <laughs> like, hook. but this happens. What would mother think if she became a pirate? But the more Wendy thought of her mother the less she could remember. John! John! Yes? What is your father's name? My father's name? Peter! Father! Peter! Michael, who is your mother? Well, he got the easy one. You are my mother, Wendy. And isn't she just first class? <laughs> I don't know, man. Something about, you know, the longer you stay in this world, the more you forget your your family and your life. Yeah, I think... Your parents. It's creepy. I think even, like, the the thought isn't that. Like, Peter's, like, saying... Like, and the thing that makes it scarier to me, right? That Peter is saying to them, like, yeah, your parents forgot you. And so you're taking to... Like, no, you're taking to Neverland so that you forget. Your parents don't forget. They're adults. Their memory is long. They know they lost a child. Yeah. But you forget. And like that, that's the poison of this world, right? Like, ugh. <laughs> it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. So like, I think that's another strength of the movie is like, and, and you know, just by the nature of it being a live action movie, it really makes the 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 impact more visceral. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this this is why Wendy leaves. Like, she's slowly uncovering the the hidden horrors of Neverland. Yeah. It's like it was fun and carefree at first, but now it's just kind of like dark, mm -hmm. you know. And like, there's there's a danger in clinging to this childhood for and too long. And I have long. to be, a, and I'm going to be the mother. Yeah. <laughs> of all these people, no. So. Yeah. Is that Peter Pan? That's that's Peter Pan. <laughs> 2003, Peter Pan. <laughs> it's dark, yo. You recommend it? Uh, yeah, not really. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I don't either. Well, here's the thing: like I'm, I can't recommend any Peter Pan movie because I've I've yet to find one I like fully. Right. Nah, we'll continue but here's to recommend the thing. Hook. This might be the best one as far as an adaptation that I've seen. You know, mm -hmm. I, I like it better than 55 Disney. I like it better than I think it's a better movie than Hook strictly because it tells a, its story better than Hook. Mm -hmm. It's cleaner. It's the pacing's better. Uh, it does, it's not three hours long, but I don't think it's good, you know, so I wouldn't recommend it. But like it's like, oh, man, you know, you have to watch a Peter Pan adaptation like it has to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess it's this one. Yeah. I mean, the acting is really good. Yeah. And as much as you don't like the the stages and the other stuff, like some of the stage, like when they're dancing in the fairy island, that like that looks good when um, they're uh, like running through some of the like forests or when they're like tied up to a rock in waters. Like those things look good. Those set designs look fine. Oh, fine. Uh, the lighting isn't it's everything ugly. and yeah. stuff like that. Blue. And, but, like, the fighting is nice. It, like, it's fine. Like, if you're like, ah, oh, just put on a Peter Pan. Like, yeah, this is a good one to do. I guess so. But, yeah, not a, not a huge recommend, honestly. Yeah.
What did the world think? What indeed? Peter Pan was a colossal box office failure. <laughs> Only grossing $122 million worldwide, which seems like a lot, but it was against a budget of $130 million. Oof. And that's not including the marketing. Oof. So it lost potential. Like, I got, I got some estimates here. It resulted in a $70 million to $95 million loss. Wow. But it was for my son. So, yeah, it was not good. Yikes. Uh, financially. But despite the losses, Peter Pan did receive generally positive reviews from critics with praise for the performances, particularly mm -hmm. that of Sumter, Herdwood, and Isaacs, mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the main three. Yeah. Visuals, you're wrong. Romantic <laughs> feel and James Newton Howard's musical score, which, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the score is really good. Movie Guide, for example, called it, quote, a wonderfully crafted, morally uplifting movie that intentionally emphasizes the fantasy elements of the story, both in dialogue and design of the film. Morally uplifting. Yeah, I, I know. OK, I, I know we didn't talk about this because we've been talking for a bit, but like the ending. Frustrating. <laughs> yeah, because I just kind of like it's it's I was like, is it morally uplifting? Because right. Sorry, kids. Like we know how Peter Pan ends. Wendy and her brothers go home and the Lost Boys are like, can we go home too? And then um, all but one of the Lost Boys is taken in by the Darling family who already does not have a father figure enough to like take care of the f children he has, whatever. We adopt them all. Um, and Peter's looking in and Wendy like sees him as like, hey, you, you want to come? And he continues to cling to this childhood and returns to a land alone devoid of anything, even the pirate he's been fighting for centuries. Like, what is this child going to do? Ah. Uh, yep. But what Morally to live uplifting. to live is quite a wonderful adventure. To be lonely is quite a lot. You know, like, what are you? It's this kind of thing. Like, what do you sequester yourselves in? Like that, that even like there's a choice. You choose to like remain a child a little bit longer, but in effort to grow into an old or you choose to stay this way and you lose everyone who's willing to grow up and move beyond you and Peter's you destroy go. everything that like you wanted to cling on to. Peter's got to go uh, teach this lesson to other children Yikes. just on the verge of adulthood. Wendy's granddaughter. <laughs> La movie buff said, quote, an earnest and enjoyable entertainment that remains loyal to its source, if not to those hoping for state of the art special effects. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that one. Speaking of those special effects, UK critic did say, quote, it's not colorful, it's not fun, it's just a gaudy mess of bad aesthetic choices and cruddy CGI. I feel like you chose that. That was cherry-picked. That, that, <laughs> by the way, that was a 2003 review. Oh, wow. That was, that's like, you know, didn't not, the CGI hadn't even aged yet. <laughs> it's like that guy, cruddy CGI. Peter Pan won Best Family Feature Film drama and jeremy sumter won best performance in a feature film leading young actor at the young artist awards nice and sumter also won best performance by a younger actor from the academy of science fiction fantasy and horror films mm. so fantasy and horror <laughs> horror what of the legacy of peter pan 2003 uh, specifically okay i was <laughs> like uh for the promotion of the film the original novel of peter pan by jm barry was re-released displaying the film's promotional material which they always do that mm -hmm. i feel like i have a copy of Fellowship of the Ring, and it's just, it's got uh, Elijah Wood on the cover, <sighs> you know? I, I don't, honestly, like, I'd rather have the timeless art than mm -hmm. the promotional still from the movie mm -hmm. on my book. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's like, you want to get a copy of 
the classic, you know, 100-year-old Peter Pan novel with Jeremy Sumter on it. <laughs> it's weird. Yes. No. <laughs> oh, gosh. Th- this, was, th- this is a sign of the times right here. A Game Boy Advance video game based on the film titled Peter Pan the Motion Picture Event was released November 4th, 2003. Wow. Developed by Sapphire and published by Atari. That was before the movie came out. Yep, they do that. Yeah. Uh, basically, the first two weeks of November, that is peak video game release time. Mm. Because that's when parents are doing their Christmas shopping. That's so, true. Uh, they they wanted the game out before Christmas. So <laughs> on Christmas morning, you can play you can, Peter Pan uh, uh, Christmas on the, on the Eve, Game can, Boy and then go see the movie. Christmas Eve, you can see the movie. Then they unwrap their presents on Christmas Day and like, ah, the movie continues in my hands. I looked it up. It's like a bad isometric like... I bet. It's, it's, it's maybe like a Zelda clone, probably, or like just like a bad isometric action adventure game. It looked oh really bad. It looked ugly. The sprites were ugly. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and what of the creatives behind the film? Well, co-writer Michael Goldenberg went on to write the screenplay for 2007's Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Oh. And co-write the screenplay for 2011's Green Lantern. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, Green that Lan- movie doesn't. They Green never Lantern's made. Not good. They All- never made a Green Lantern movie. What are you talking about? Also bad special effects. Green Lantern is like one of those uh, IPs that that they haven't made a movie for yet. <laughs> like it's a good. They should probably like try to make a movie for that. Yeah, that guy. You know, I th- I think that guy who is in Deadpool, he he'd be a really good Green Lantern. Ah, uh, he'd be cool. I I think he'd like. <laughs> I I don't know that Green Lantern was like a funny guy, but yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. <laughs> and director PJ Hogan went on to direct 2009's Confessions of a Shopaholic and 2012's oh. Mental. Don't know that one. I don't know that one yet. Well, that's Peter Pan. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's it. We made it, kids. Uh, we're going to close out this segment with uh, a piece of the score. It is the flying theme by the James score was really Newton good? Howard. That, that flying, that, it's, it's some good stuff. That's it. That's a good, it's got some synth in there, you know, mm. with with the orchestral. We like synth in this house. Yeah, it's, it's good. That, that, that song's good. But anyway, mm. we're going to close out with that. We'll be back after the break with my movie of 2003. See you on the other side of Neverland. Lads. Ready to cast off? Aye, aye, Captain! Oh, no. 
Peter Pan, rated PG. At theaters Christmas Day. Got to go and dig those holes. Man, I'm tired. With broken hands and withered souls, emancipated from all you know. You got to go and dig those holes. you play that song everyone knows we're coming in with right (laughs) if they hadn't already seen the cover art it's like the lasting legacy of this movie is this stupid song that's fair but i will say in this moment real time i just realized they're not saying digging up holes they're singing digging on digging on them holes they don't say holes i thought it was digging up those holes digging up uh, it's digging on, uh, on digging that's what I was just listening to, and I was like, digging ho ho oh digging it. Yeah, everyone thought that. Nope, I'm listening to it now, <laughs> and it's digging on. Anyway, that's the song uh, Dig It by the Detent Boys. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the song, they, they played this so much on the it Disney It sounds like channel. a Reddit username. The Detent Boys? Yes. I don't know, it kind of sounds like, you know, like a 90s rap group. Mm. I, I can see that, you know. But uh, yeah, every single day on the Disney Channel. They played the music video for this I because they were, it. I mean, this is a Disney film. They yeah. were pushing it hard, trying to get kids in the theater. Yep. I mean, yep. and it worked. And it's like a cheesy rap, you know, and it, I mean, it, it, honestly, um, it, it has the flavor of a, like a, you know, contemporary rap song. We will not this call this out. cheesy. What we will do is play this for a Gen Zer to see what their thoughts are, because I will admit I have a lot of a nostalgia, but I want to say that they're going to think it's pretty swaggy, swaggity swag. <laughs> okay i mean it's no uh lose yourself but (laughs) But this this ain't a music episode it's a movie episode so uh, yeah everyone knows this movie released april 11th 2003 directed by andrew davis written by lewis sakar based on his novel of the same name starring sigourney weaver john voight patricia arquette tim blake nelson and actual cannibal shia labeouf that is holes i demand I demand we end the session with actual cannibal Shia LaBeouf. No, we can't. I demand it. No, no, it's, it's just, it, it's not possible. I already have a song picked this up. This is the last episode you'll ever hear me on, kids. You, I will share actual cannibal Shia I'm LaBeouf on Twitter. I'm literally crying in the studio right now. There is tears rolling down my cheeks. Demand. If you haven't seen it, you really should seek out the song Shia LaBeouf by some guy. <laughs> some guy? I don't know who it was, what his name is. No. But some guy just wrote like this funny like art, you know, like like it's like a theatrical like operatic song about Shia LaBeouf. It's a full on just what is it? Symphony. It, it's crazy. It, it just escalates and uh, it's pretty dark. But yeah, Shia I La- think it's pretty light. But like Shia LaBeouf is, is kind of an unhinged human being in general. So it, it fits. That's fair. I think for the time I was like, what is happening? This is funny, but he's not like that. I, You know what? Let's be honest. Like, I know we're not going to talk about history, but I don't have a lot of, like, 
I didn't watch a lot of Shia LaBeouf stuff. I was really not a Disney kid. We know this. And I was just kind of like, he's fine, I no, guess. No even Stevens in your household? No. I mean, like, I think my sisters watched it, but I found it very annoying. I found him very annoying. Him, the character, whatever his name was, Randall Stevens. And um, <laughs> I honestly can't remember. Yeah, I think I remember seeing him in the Disney Channel, the DCOM uh, True Confessions, where he played a... I don't remember what his uh, neural divergency was, but it was something. Yeah. Um, and I remember thinking like, oh, that was an inch. I can't like, nope. That And that was like in 2000. Who knows? I don't know. So anyway, I just thought he was like, okay, he's whatever. But then all this other stuff starts coming up. I was like, is he a weirdo? But that was around the time that I also decided that all actors are just weirdos. Everybody is just a theory kid. Well, if you... If you- Listen to his side of like growing up and you know as a child actor he had a rough life and his parents I think he has a he has a difficult relationship with his dad and his mm-hmm. parents um, so you know that's just he, that's the thing like around like 2014 or something like that like he's going on talk shows talking about yeah man I just like got really drunk I had like two whiskeys and then I left and I got in a fight in the street and then I went back in the bar and had two more whiskeys and then I got outside and I you know pushed a cop and you know he's just like What's he's very he was very self destructive at that time. Who gets drunk off of two whiskey? No, he was just like, like he tells us it was kind of a funny story. I think he was playing it up because it was a talk show, but like he punctuated every event from like a wild night he had with. Then I drank two whiskeys. Ah, uh, okay, strange. But yeah, okay. yeah, but uh, yeah, I was I was watching a lot of Even Stevens on the yeah. Disney Channel. Uh, it was, I don't know, it was like my Saturday afternoon show. The only episode that I can re- I remember one snippet of I think his brother running faster than a car and then the musical episode <laughs> because I like musical episodes and sometimes I still say we are the masters of the gym and that is my only yeah. reference. I think I think maybe Maroon 5 was in an episode. I do not remember. That's all I know. Nothing about the actual show or what it was. The only one I remember he got a job sleeping in a Storeroom. Wait a minute. Did you just say you don't know anything about the musical episode? I have not. I don't remember. We will be changing that. (laughs) I've probably seen it, Mm, but I don't. We'll see it again. It's probably bad. I've only seen it once in my life. Anyway, yeah. Holes. Holes. Holes (laughs) is a a movie starring Shia LaBeouf, (laughs) and he's very good in it. Well, we'll talk about that later. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is based on a book by Louis Sicar, and uh, I want to hear your history with Holes because I have a very, very interesting history with Holes. Oh, it's definitely better than my history. Go ahead. I went to a theater and I saw it. I liked the song and I sang it. There were three cute boys in the movie. Which you gotta, you gotta, when we talk about the boys, you gotta tell me which detent boy you had a crush on. All right, sure. But that's legitimately it. Like, what you don't like, was it just like you, the, the marketing hit you and your, your sisters at the right time? Yeah, I think that that was it. Cause I didn't know that there was a book until I was high school. Well, you're in high school at this point, right? Or you're right before high school, I guess. If it came out in April. Right no, before I'm not high, in school. high school. That's what we talked about. Was I in high school? So you were going from the you know middle school to high school this year. Yes. Hey kids, I just want you to know I have a bad memory. I forget whole conversations as soon as we have them. Sometimes I forget what I'm saying as I'm saying it. No, I do not have dementia yet, but it is a concern. Look, 2003 is the year we're in. Yes. I graduated high school in 2007. Yeah, that tracks. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's four, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> oh, so I, I, yeah, I learned it was a book 
after probably like two years or something like because I it, it was not the same thing so I don't really have a history with it otherwise anyway I was in fifth grade the early part of 2003 and I had a fifth grade teacher named Mrs. Verweel okay. she's an older gal uh, I hope she's okay. I hope she's still alive. I was like, wow, I was. Thinking, I don't know. She was really old. Like, oh my gosh, I was thinking that this is a thing you would normally say if we were alone, and then you just said it on mic. <laughs> <laughs> but was she also like she was a like cra- like she had a she she led a wild life. Like she just you know during like one of our breaks, like you know we we had uh, February's off, right? Mm-hmm. And like she she said, yeah, I'm flying to Africa and I'm going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> And she did. Okay. And she brought us all back like pebbles that she brought home from Mount Kilimanjaro. That's cute. But also, please stop risking the lives of Sherpas. <laughs> yeah. But I'm just saying she's like, you know, probably this, you know, 60 year old woman climbing Mount Kilimanjaro, Gosh. the second highest mountain in the world. You know what's the word, like the most amazing thing about your story? Is that she was still working a full time job at yep. sixty? She, yeah, she can't. But yeah, uh, maybe she wasn't sixty, but like she was, she was. She seemed old because she was you were re- young. <laughs> exactly. But she had gray hair, so I can only assume. How dare you? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But anyway, she also uh, she read to us mm-hmm. every day. Oh. That was part of the thing. So you know, she uh, read. I think just like four books throughout the whole school year. Mm-hmm. She read the Book of Three and the Black Cauldron, which are the first two books in the. Pradane series, mm-hmm. you know, the Black Cauldron. Disney yes. made a movie out of it. That you hate. Oh, yeah. I, I didn't watch the movie until after she read it to us. And then I read the whole series. And then we watched the Black Cauldron. It sucked. Disappointment. Yeah. <laughs> but um, she would get really animated, right? You know, she'd act out, do character voices for everybody. Uh, you know, get very like it was it was it was, you know, looking back, I was like, that was really cool for her to do, you know, because it, yeah. it made it was funny. I went in to fifth grade and i told this story when we talked about 2002 went into fifth grade teacher asked hey what are you maybe i didn't say this but what's your favorite book and everyone went around and me and my friend brian said our favorite books were the legend of zelda choose your own adventure books Mm -hmm. and she said oh what is that oh it's like a fantasy adventure thing she's like oh you're gonna love the book i'm gonna read to you guys and it's like (laughs) turns out yes i did in fact love the book she was right (laughs) yeah freaking the black cauldron series has so much zelda vibes yeah yeah it was very cool she made me want to read them all. But anyway, she also read uh, uh, My Brother Sam is Dead, which is a, uh American Revolution set story. Okay. We're learning about the American Revolution, so I think Got it tied into that. And then she read Holes. <laughs> she read us Holes. What was the tie-in to the... I, she just, I guess she just thought it was a good book. And I mean, she was not wrong. It was a good book. You know, we were all thoroughly entertained. Quick question which book was better in your opinion holes or the perdane series or holes really yeah huh. i was like well here's the okay now holes she was reading this to us probably in the movie had not come out yet mm-hmm. and i didn't know they were going to make a movie until legitimately i think we went to the theater and saw a trailer for huh. holes and i was like they're making a movie of holes <laughs> and like she we just read that so it was neat and then we went and saw Holes and surprisingly faithful. And we'll, we'll learn why, because it was written by the same author. Mm-hmm. The author wrote the movie. Um, the screenplay. Mm-hmm. Incredi- yeah. Incredibly uh, faithful to the book. So it was really cool. 
And then going into sixth grade, like I just read holes like over and over again because we had like reading times dedicated in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like you have to read for an hour. I yeah. just I just kept reading holes. Aw, comfort book. Yep. And then we got our DVD player at the end of 2003 and holes was like among the first DVDs mm-hmm. that we got that Christmas. Yeah. It was like, yeah. The other two movies we got were also runners up. So we'll talk about them <laughs> when we get there. Anyway, yeah, so Holes like probably was my favorite book mm. throughout the rest of elementary school. Cute. Cute, 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 cute. And then I watched the movie a bunch because we had it on DVD. And you liked it. Yep. Listen to the commentaries. Of course you did. <laughs> but that's Holes and uh, yeah, we can talk about how the movie was made. Oh, don't you want to talk about history with it first? That was it. I've already forgotten. <laughs> 1998, American author Louis Sakar. Then best known for the Wayside School of children's books. You heard those? No. Published the novel Holes, which told the story of a teenager, Stanley Elnatz, who was sent to Camp Green Lake, a correctional boot camp in the desert of Texas after being falsely accused of theft. Yeah, that's, that's what happens. That's basically what happens in the movie. Yep. So it, uh, if you have not seen Holes, the basic gist is this kid gets in trouble uh, when the police think he stole a pair of, like, collectible uh, or like an athlete's shoes yeah a pair of shoes that were going to be donated to a children's hospital Mm -hmm. and auctioned off or whatever yeah and the money was going to go to i think it was a shelter something like that but uh these shoes ended were were stolen by somebody and stanley was in the wrong place at the wrong time he's like walking into a freeway overpass and the shoes fell from the sky that's the, the the verbiage in the book yeah shoes fell from the sky and hit him in the head and he's like, oh, these, these shoes are cool. And uh, the police just assumed he stole them. And because so he's, great detective work. So he's sent to this correctional facility in the desert for juveniles. Mm. And it's called Camp Green Lake, but that's ironic because it is a dead, desolate. There is no lake and there is no green. Right. So and then the, the whole point of Camp Green Lake is the kids have to dig one hole every day. Mm-hmm. And that's their punishment. And it's got to be what five foot deep, five foot wide, or six something. Five like and that. five, yeah. Five and five. And so that's that's holes. And then it's like this weird, you know, tale that spans generations. And you know, you you learn about all the boys that are also there to dig holes with him. And mm-hmm. it's it's a good little adventure book. Adventure. Yeah. Okay. I think so. Adventure. I don't think I would know what else to call it, but I think in my brain is like adventure is. You're going somewhere. Well, they do. That's you know. fair, but they stay more more longer. More longer. I'm not saying you're wrong. I was just like, oh, is there another genre that Gen- you're able Drama? To? I don't know. Druma. Mystery? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Holes was a critical and commercial success, winning the 1998 U.S. National Book Award for Young People's Literature and Congrats. the 1999 Newbery Award. For the year's most distinguished contribution to American literature for children, Congrats. among many other accolades. Good job, dude. Yeah. The novel's reputation naturally garnered interest from film studios, with the rights eventually going to Chicago Pacific Entertainment, the production company of action director Andrew Davis, best known for 1992's Under Siege, that's mm-hmm. uh, with Steven Seagal, and 1993's The Fugitive. I've heard of both of those, but I haven't seen it. Is it both about people running away from their own crimes? Uh, Under Siege is Die Hard on a Boat. (laughs) And The Fugitive is about uh, uh, Harrison Ford running from the police. 
because he was accused of a murder he didn't commit. Die hard on a boat should just be called die wet. <laughs> because you get cut it. <laughs> Davis saw holes as an opportunity to show that he was capable of making more than action films. Which I thought was good. I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The Walt Disney Company co-produced the film and distributed it via their Buena Vista division. Davis described the arrangement in this way, quote, Holes was wonderful because it was an independent movie that had studio distribution and financing in place. That's rare. And I was like, that sounds like a good deal, my man. You're right. It was like, uh, okay, so here's the thing. Luckily, uh, because Holes just turned 20, mm-hmm. uh, there have been a lot of retrospective articles written in the last month, mm. including a very thorough oral history by, uh, I think it was Insider. And uh, so I got to you know read basically firsthand accounts from many people involved in the production. Oh. And uh, like Davis and his co-producers were talking about how it's like, yeah, Disney barely bothered us. Oh, it's like rare. Yeah. It was just like we we went out there and no one told us to change anything. No one said no. And uh, we got once we got to marketing, that's when they were like, well, how do we market this movie? But it ended up working because it was a hit. Yeah. I mean, that's a windfall indeed. Yeah. Like, let's be honest. I mean. Disney back then, I guess, wasn't like NBC, but (laughs) Disney does like to have their fingers in everything and restart things over and over again. I guess we've mostly dealt with them with their like animation division because I'm thinking specifically like Emperor's New Groove and stuff like that. But man's lucked out. Katzenberg's gone. (laughs) (sighs) But like, I think the biggest probably creative decision they made was probably push Shia LaBeouf into the casting room but they liked him they wanted him so mm-hmm. yeah it could have gone so so much wrong like you do have the writer uh the the author doing the screenplay and I having have, heavy I have notes on that okay <laughs> listen to this the studio originally hired an outside screenwriter to adapt the novel into the screenplay right but as Davis put it quote the idiot tried to change the whole book <laughs> He just wanted to push his own thing. He was like, ha I was trying to get this turned into a movie for a while. I, I don't know, but Davis's production partner, Teresa Tucker Davies, described <laughs> this draft as, quote, this insanely dark dystopian film, not even anywhere close to the story. Oh, wow. Can so, I see it? I, I don't. I, I That would be really funny to, like, see that published somewhere. Hey, Internet, find it. <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I don't know. There's probably contracts to say you can't, but, like. Break the law. It's like a dystopian, like, future novel where kids are meant to, you know, dig holes in, like, a RoboCop future or something like that. But it's just like, dude, keep it, just keep it simple, stupid, you know? I legit don't know how authors do it. Like, what do you do when you sign the rights over to your book to, like, be made into something else? Because... I would go insane. I'd be like, nope, can't use the title of my book. Can't use any of my characters. What do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah, I think he was, uh, like, uh, Louis Sicard was, like, very nervous. Mm-hmm. He He's interviewed for this oral history, and he seemed, like, hesitant to even, like, give away the rights to the book because mm-hmm. he's like, no one's going to make this. Like, who's going to make this book work? Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just got too many storylines. It's not yeah. going to work as a movie. Davis and Tucker Davies decided to instead hire Louis Sicar himself to pen the screenplay. Nice. Together, the trio developed the script and storyboarded the entire thing on note cards. Oh. Yeah. Very they were very meticulous, it sounds like. 
which mm. seems really cool to me. And like, obviously, Lewis Sakar had never written a screenplay before, so like, he had to get like help. They had to do this together. Yeah. But I think overall, like, him being involved is why this is, in my opinion, one of the greatest book adaptations ever made. I have to agree. Like I've ever seen. Yeah. You know, like, I, I you know, the 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 book is still better, right? Mm. But it is like completely on par. You know, like, I don't think, like, they did the best job they, you know, ever could to make a book into a movie, you know, retaining it, right? I can't, I can't disagree with you, but I mean, I haven't read the book, <laughs> so, but I've only ever heard that take. So, it was a great decision, and to not, like, steamroll, to have the author in one, and to help, kind of, like, help them make that transition rather than steamrolling and just being like, well, I have the name of the author here kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. We'll talk casting and characters a little later, but principal photography took place in the summer of 2002 between Hollywood sound stages, the Disney Ranch in Santa Clarita, California, and Ridgecrest, California, in the Mojave Desert. <laughs> oh my gosh, I hope those children had water. There's uh, no way they didn't. There's a lot of like stories about that. Like they interviewed the actor who played Magnet, which is one of the kid characters, and uh -huh. he talked about like the conditions they worked in. And I have a bit more facts on that a little later when I'm when we talk casting and characters and stuff. Like I'll talk about like some of the individual experiences these kids had. But according to them, air temperatures in Ridgecrest reached as high as 119 degrees Fahrenheit. 119. Do you think? the experience was worse than Woodstock 99? Well, I mean, he, they all seemed to like, they were like, yeah, it was rough, but like, okay. we got through it. Yeah. Um, they they took care of these kids and made sure they were hydrated and all that stuff. Good. But, but here's the kicker. Temperatures in the holes themselves were always higher than the outside. Oh so my gosh. temperatures in the holes got as high as 130 degrees. Ooh. And they had, a, they had like doctors on set and were like, yo, if this hole, you know, reaches over like, 115 or something like that. Like, you got to pull those kids out of there. Yeah. Throw some water. You can't even throw water in it. It'll boil. Yeah. And, like, I think at one point it was like last. This is a story that Magnet's actor told. What's his name? Hold on. I have a cast here. Miguel Castro. Miguel Castro said the last day of shooting, it was like 130 degrees in that hole. And it was just like, yo, they're telling us you need to get out of there. And he's like, let's just finish it, man. Mm. So they pulled a, a long day in the heat. Ugh. Yep. Ugh. So, so more, more on all that a little later. I will on never how, be an how, actor. How the kids had to deal with that. But uh, that's basically Holes. They finished it up. Got it to editing. Disney had some trouble marketing it, but they got it out. They did it. It worked on me because I knew what the book was. Mm. And the book was, like, from what I understand, incredibly popular. So mm -hmm. it already had, like, a set. Yeah, it had you know, a following. Fan base. Yeah. Kids were going to go see it. Adults were going to go see it. So anyway. <laughs> holes. Holes. I basically described what the basic uh, story is mm -hmm. for Holes. So Stanley Elnitz, played by uh, Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> let's, let's hear him a little bit of him. All my life, I seem to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. My grandpa, Stanley Elnaz II, says it's all because of this 150-year-old curse. Now, I don't really believe in the family curse, but when things go wrong, it kind of helps if you can blame it on something. And for me, things went wrong a lot. So I, I want to talk about the performances of everyone in the movie, because they're all great. Everyone's great. 
Uh, Shia LaBeouf really pulls it off. Uh, you you heard him that so Stan, Stanley Elnats, uh him and his family think they're cursed. Think so, they they know they're cursed <laughs> because something his great great grandfather did. Mm-hmm. His uh, no good, dirty rotten pig stealing great great grandfather. <gasps> we'll talk about it a little later on. Mm. But yeah, Stanley uh, throughout the movie and the book, like he's always something you know bad happens to him. Like he's mm-hmm. always you know at the wrong place at the wrong time. Murphy's Law follows him around. Yeah. For the role of Stanley Yelnats, producers were looking for a, quote, young Tom Hanks. Okay. Or, or a young Dustin Hoffman. Just get just get Tom Hanks in there. <laughs> he, put, he already played a young guy in Big. Just do it. Ugh. They found that in Shia LaBeouf, then best known for his role, Disney Channel's Even Stevens, as we talked about. LaBeouf performed for Holes and Even Stevens simultaneously. How old was he? Probably like 13 or something. I feel like that's illegal. Well, I mean, that's that's the the life of a kid actor. Like he, M- M- Michael J. Fox, when he made Back to the Future, was filming that while also filming uh, Family Ties. Yeah. So they also still have to go to school, and there's laws yes. and legislations for how much they can work in a day. Correct. And he had to be in the desert for half of. I wonder if there was just a season where he was sunburnt the whole time. <laughs> Of even Stevens. Well, the Even Stevens movie came out in 2003. Mm-hmm. So, you know, maybe they were filming the movie. They're, the tropical, they were all, it's set on a tropical island. I feel like they did, they they went on location for that, though. Nah, they probably did on sound stages. And that, and maybe filled a few scenes out in Hawaii or somewhere. Like, all right, we're going to Hawaii, but you've got to be back to finish shooting for holes tomorrow, so. <laughs> Don't know. Ugh. So, uh, let's talk Stanley. Oh, okay. And how uh, LaBeouf plays him, because I think he does a good job. Yeah, no, I think he does He's very really charismatic. Good. Talks like a talks like a kid. Talks like a kid, rather than an adult. Uh, yeah, I think he's got that like. He does a really good job at playing. Um, what is it? The like naive. Yeah. Yeah, like I think it's really interesting. Because you might want to go in thinking, like, this character always has bad things following them around and bad things happening. Why is he not more jaded? And you could feel like, this feels unnatural. But uh, LaBeouf plays it in such a way that it, like, no. Like, he's got a, a natural lean towards optimism. Yeah. And it feel it doesn't feel forced. It feels very much like, no, it's all right, ma. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, because of the naivete. It's like, naivete, yeah, in innocence in Stanley. Huh? There's an innocence instantly. Yeah. yeah, and I think he plays it really well. Uh, though there is a moment where he has um, a like blanket flip. <laughs> Why are you so nice? Why are you so nice to the blanket? <laughs> like, oh, so he has to like play up his because that's the thing. So he's a soft boy, mm-hmm. like literally soft too. Because in the in the book, I'll, I'll I'll pepper in some like facts about like the differences between the movie and the book. But in the book, Stanley is supposed to be obese. Mm-hmm. Going into Camp Green Lake, and throughout the story, he describes how thin he gets. Mm-hmm. You know, because literally he's out there digging a hole every single day in the hot sun in you know? thirty, one hundred and thirty degree holes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> gosh. Which I do just want to say, in the canon of the world, there are dead kids in those holes. <laughs> There's like if it's a hundred and thirty degrees in those holes, and they're just getting breaks for water occasionally. Canon, some of those holes are filled in with dead bodies. Continue. But obviously they couldn't, you know, convincingly show Shia LaBeouf go from obese to thin yeah. throughout the course of a summertime. So they, they cut that part from the book. But my point is uh, uh, Stanley's a soft boy 
mm-hmm. charged in a crime he didn't commit and is mm. sent to a really harsh environment with like troubled youths. Yeah. You know, like legitimate delinquents. And he has to like either adapt or, or perish, I guess. Yeah. Those <laughs> are know? his two options. Yeah. So it's like, I think Shia LaBeouf plays that role good because he, he goes from being like this like naive, you know, like I've never done anything wrong in my whole life kind of thing. And now I'm in this environment with all these kids and I have to like play the part, mm-hmm. you know, if I want to fit in at all, like it's sort of like going to prison, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you got to get in with the click yeah, or you're going to get shanked. Chink, chink. So he gets put in his, his, his tent with the, you know, detent with mm-hmm. the other boys. And it's like, he's gotta, if he's going to sink or swim, he's, if he's going to survive, like, what is it? 18 months in this place. Mm-hmm. He needs to act tough. Yeah. And Shia LaBeouf does that, you know? Yeah, I, and I think... Like, the, a, like a real teen would. Yeah, I think the transition is really, like, well-written and well-performed because you could see him slowly, like, losing the innocent air as he's, like, writing notes, as he's, like, getting clowned by these boys, as he's, like, losing privileges and stuff like that because he's like the bottom of the barrel like oh i found a thing no you didn't find something i found something and then like he's writing a letter to his mom at one point and one of the other kids takes it and he's like stop like you see a little bit of firmness in him and then when the other boy like comes back at him hard he like realizes like i can't do anything he's like i'm sorry i'm sorry but it like evolves into an accidental fight and then he gets street cred. And then from there, like, you see him, like, lean into that, lean into having, like, power and control over one of the other characters and also into, like, establishing his his place in this, like, um, hierarchy yeah. of these gang children, air quotes, <laughs> uh, but also into the in this harsh place. And I think that uh, we'll talk about justice later but um it is performed in such a way that like oh there's not many moments that i'm like "Mm, that was because the plot determined it it like felt natural so he did a really good job yeah like i think uh, just in general shia labeouf as an actor has a lot of like uh rubble without a cause vibes like uh he's got he's got james dean vibes to me you know just shia labeouf in general like he's just kind of i don't know Classic game, Steen. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. He's got a swagger. He's got, you know, uh, just a demeanor about him. And I think the fact that he plays like this goober Stanley Elnats who is slowly hardened by life. Like, it's very natural. Like, Sh- Shia LaBeouf, like, has, he, he, he just acts like a real teenager throughout this movie. You mm-hmm. know? And I, he was a real teenager. Yeah. But, like, he just was able to carry it forward, you know, just naturally. I know the term... James Dean and the name turned James Dean, but I've never seen a James Dean film. Or There's anything. only three of them, so yeah. So I don't actually know what a James Dean swagger is. I think is it a Fonzie swagger? Well, Fonzie's in the movie, but no. Is he? Yeah. Wait, uh, the actor? The or? actor, Fonzie. Okay, I was, <laughs> I was like, or is it Fo- the Fonz? And then Happy Days was a spinoff of whatever movie it was. Oh, Henry Winkler. He's he's in a. He's in the movie. He's in one of those movies. Oh, the movie we're watching now. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I don't have any clips of it. It's fine. But uh, maybe, maybe this. I got a family curse. Hold on. I don't know what this clip is. All because of your no good, dirty, rotten, big stealing great great grandfather. That's who sealed our destiny. Why do you think none of his inventions work? Pa. 
I learn from failure. Doesn't matter how, how smart you are, you, you need luck. Something we ain't got. Yeah, what about your father, the first Stanley Yelnats? <laughs> he wasn't so unlucky. You told me he made a fortune in the stock market. Some luck. Hey, he lost everything. He was robbed by kissing Kate Barlow. His family. Sorry, that was Stanley's family. <laughs> Stanley's family. That was the Yelnats. Oh, yeah. The, the, the older man, the one who started that clip, that's his grandpa. Mm -hmm. And then you heard, you heard him go, you heard Henry Winkler, the Fonz, go, Pa. Pa. <laughs> he was robbed. I think uh, it was the first movie I ever saw with Henry Winkler. So I, well, <laughs> whenever I see him, I, I still think of holes. Holes. But, you know, he was in bigger things. Yeah. You know. But yeah, it's like his Stanley's family doesn't really play a whole big part in this movie. They just kind of, you know, they're kind of there to be supportive. Uh, <laughs> uh, Stanley's dad is uh, an inventor and he's trying to invent a remedy for stinky feet. Mm. It's kind of comic relief, I guess. Yeah. Why would you marry into this family? <laughs> he's like, he's the whole, the whole floor smells like stinky feet. The whole floor smells like stinky feet. Anyway, uh, before I talk about the other kid actors, um, Stanley, when he gets to camp green, Lake, he meets a couple characters right off the bat. Who does Mr. he meet? Mr. Sir and a doctor. Mr. Sir. My name is Mr. Sir. Whenever you speak to me, you will call me by my name. Is that clear? Mr. Sir. You think that's funny? Huh? Oh, Mr. Sir. This is in the Girl Scout camp. Mr. Sir, played by John Voight, does a great job. He he gets all the the right like uh there's a lot of like ticks when you read the book. Like Mr. Sir has a lot of like weird ticks. Mm. And he repeats things over and over again. So uh he's this like gruff, scary man. And it's Stan, like he's one of the big authority figures at Camp Green Lake. Right. He's constantly chewing on sunflower seeds because he quits smoking, and that's all he does. And like the every scene he's in, he's uh, in the book at least. It's, it's always mentioning how he's just ch chewing on a handful of sunflower seeds, mm. and uh, he he constantly jokes about Camp Green Lake not being a Girl Scout camp. Yeah. Give that man a cookie. But I, I yeah, John Voight, like he he's. He plays like a man who's like gone insane, like out in this, this the hot sun. Yeah. He's like squints his eyes a lot. He's like, uh, and he's like very paranoid all the time. Yeah. He he feels like he's on mushrooms the entire time. <laughs> or something. Yeah. He's something indeed. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, I, I personally, there's not much to say. He's le legit just like the figure of, I mean, authority. Yes. But um, the big bad, not. Obviously not the actual big bag, but the most aggressive. There you go. He's yeah. the aggressor uh, more often than not. And, I mean, he does a good job. There's a lot of stuff, though, that he does that I'm like, illegal. Those are children. Well, he, he describes what Stanley's going to be doing here at the camp every day. You were to dig one hole each day. Five foot deep, five foot in diameter. Your shovel is your measuring stick. The longer it takes you to dig... Oh, you'd be out in the hot sun. Oh, sorry, Mr. Sir. Yep. Five foot deep, five foot in diameter. Yeah. Because, oh, here's the philosophy. This is a little later, but uh, I, this is lifted straight from the book, I think. Dig here. Now, if you find anything interesting, you are to report it to me or Pendansky. If the warden likes what you find, you get the rest of the day off. What am I supposed to be looking for, Mr. Sir? 
You're not looking for anything. You're building character. You take a bad boy, make him dig holes all day in the hot sun, and it turns him into a good boy. That's our philosophy here at Camp Green Lake. I think the delivery of that line is so ugh, insidious because it's obvious that he said it so like that he knows that's not the truth right but like what am i looking for i'm not looking for anything you're like the spiel comes so quick because he's told this a thousand times a thousand times not just to kids but like it's all he says it in such a way that like they're like the actor says it in such a way that it's not a hint to the audience that it's anything different other than like you're looking at this you're like it's not like you're not looking for anything. It's not threatening. It's not o- o- aggressive like everything else. It's just stated. Like, this is a fact. This is what you're like, that you come here to build character. And I think that that's like one of the, the best little acting moments of this character. Yeah. And then he mentioned another character by name, called him Pendansky. So that is Dr. Pendansky. Stanley Yelnats, yeah. I just want you to know that you may have done some bad things, but that does not make you a bad kid. I respect you, Stanley. Welcome to Camp Green Lake. I'm Dr. Pendansky, your counselor. Start that touchy-feely crap, I'm out of here. In a lot of ways, Dr. Pendansky's a snake. Like, yeah. like he, he comes off like nice at first. Like, oh, well, this guy really cares. You know, he's like a counselor. He's gonna he's gonna touchy-feely crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, I respect you, Stanley. But then slowly the layers come off and you're like, oh yeah, this guy's rotten. Ugh. Yeah, I think like as a kid, I was like, oh, he's only here to like actually help. The rest of them are e- is are obviously not great, but he like doesn't know that he's in this thing. He just wants to help kids. Nope, nope. He indulges in the the, the authority and the power over kid children. Yeah. And like he gets like weird. sick pleasure out of like, you know, insulting kids and stuff. Like you see it like the, Tim Blake Nelson uh, is the actor. And I think he does a good job of like. Just revealing that in very subtle ways. Like, yeah. he, like, when, when he, I, I, there's like a scene where, like, you know, a kid is, uh, like, there's a fight and, like, he tells Stanley, he's like, come on, Stanley, fight him. Yeah. Teach him a lesson. And, like, he's got, like, this sick pleasure in his yeah. eyes. Like, I want to see these kids fight each other. Like, lick at his lips and stuff. <laughs> uh, I think that. Him, I will say, like, again, as an actor, right? Like, I know we're going to focus on the kids more than anything else. But as an actor, again, he does a really, really good job. Um, because even watching it, again, as an adult, like, knowing he's a snake in the woods, in the snake water, in the grass. grass, snake in an element, <laughs> snake in the fire. That's what I'm going to say from now on. Um, it's still, like, at the very beginning in those first few scenes feels like genuine right and i think that 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 carries through in the novel I, i'm pretty sure like in the novel he becomes a villain later on but it kind of in because you get to see his face and tim blake nelson plays the character so subtly you you see like the the evil within a bit better on screen mm-hmm. than on the page it's kind of interesting hmm. um it, it, Podansky, uh he's gonna he's gonna run down a few things about camp green Lake, so i could just you know get this plot stuff out of the way You'll be in D10. D stands for diligence. That's the mess hall, there's the rec room, and there's the showers. There's only one knob, because there's only one temperature. Cold. And that's the warden's cabin over there. That's the number one rule at Camp Green Lake. Do not upset the warden. Yeah, he seemed kind of... Who? Oh, Mr. Sir? Oh, he's not the warden. He's just been in a bad mood since he quit smoking. Hmm. Well, well I was going to say, um, the... 
the movie had a lot of work to do to dispense all of the like facts and, and mm-hmm. like exposition that's present in the book. Like all of that, all everything he just said, like everything from the, the warden stuff to the fact that the showers are only cold. Um, those are all like explained in little scenes throughout the book. Mm-hmm. You know, like Stanley, I think if I remember right, he doesn't realize the shower only has a cold knob until he takes a shower for the first time. <sighs> and he realizes, oh crap. It's going to, you know, I have like two minutes to take a cold shower. Yeah. You know, uh, but the fact that this is a movie, they had to kind of cram all that exposition in really quickly. Yeah. So it's like, for the most part, they do a really good job of just dispensing of everything, mm-hmm. you know, in a seamless, quick way. Yeah. So I, was, I just wanted to. It doesn't com- feel clunky at all. I just want to, you know, again, pat uh, the, the writing, <laughs> the screenwriter on the, yeah. on the back there. And then uh, Mr. Podansky introduces Stanley to Detent. The Detent Boys. Hey, Mom. Who's a Neanderthal? This is Stanley. So what's happening with Barfbath? Oh, uh, Lewis won't be returning. Uh, he's still in the hospital. Stanley, meet Rex, Alan, and Theodore. Hi. Yo, my name is X-Ray. And that's Squid. That's Armpit. Him? He's mom. They all have their little nicknames, but I prefer to use the names their parents gave them. Yep. And that that's that, that's not the whole detent, but that's, you know. The three. ones that you're going to meet more often. Well, squid maybe not so much. <laughs> but yeah, there there's you know, those are three important ones and uh they all have nicknames. So we're going to refer to them by their nickname because that's basically what they are throughout right. the film and the book. Um yeah, so now I just want to meet detent and talk about their characters. Let's start with the most important boy, Squid. Squid. <laughs> oh, yeah, like, let's get Squid out of the way. <laughs> uh, so Squid uh, really does not do very much at all, but he is involved in a scene you referenced earlier when yeah. Stanley is writing his, his, a letter to his mother. Who you writing huh? to? Oh, you miss your mommy and daddy? Well, I don't want them to worry. They don't care. Can you give me the letter? Believe me. They're glad to be rid of you. Literally, I think the only important thing that Squid does, other <laughs> than just kind of be present and ask like questions that any of the other boys could ask. Mm. But I was like, th- that that little exchange tells a story about Squid. You know, yeah. the sick. To, uh, they're the, they don't care about you. They don't care. They're glad to be rid of you, right? I'm mm. like, uh, he he has a troubled relationship with his parents. Yeah, whatever that means. You know, someone told him, "We're glad to be rid of you." You know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Squid's not important. Wow. <laughs> to the wow. to the story. Honestly, if if you had to cut one of the detent boys, it would be Squid. Wow. Give his give anything that Squid was gonna go do to Zigzag, and that's all you got to do. Like Squid and Zigzag could be their own, just one character. All these, if you needed to. All these boys save Stanley are here because nobody in their life cared enough to fight for them to have a different outcome to the consequences of whatever they did. And you just said the same thing all the other adults said in their life. You should feel ashamed. Have a moment of silence for your rudeness. Thank you. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I have some facts on like the casting and, and filming for these kids before we talk about the the other the important kids. <laughs> wow. Non-repentant. So to fill out the young cast, producers traveled around to high schools in the Southern California area 
and held open casting calls. So a lot of these kids were probably, you know, they auditioned off the street, you know, just at their local high school. Like there was, you know, some kind of casting call probably in the drama department and it's, kids just auditioned. Honestly, it's probably one of the only films that uses children as children rather than adults as children. That's true. These are all legitimate teenagers too. Yeah. Yeah. The cast underwent a boot camp for eight weeks in order to prepare for the set's heat and adverse weather conditions. What did the boot camping do? Uh, stunt coordinator Alex Daniels trained the child actors in digging holes as they had to look experienced and needed to develop calluses on their hands. Ugh. So. All right. Here's another thing. The actors also spent six hours in school on top of their filming schedules each yeah, day. Yeah, exactly. They had long days. Exactly. That's like why I'm saying like it's mandatory for children actors to do schooling. And he, Buff was doing, Buff, whatever, was doing this, even Stevens and that. Mm-mm. At 13, that's when you learn algebra. No, that's when you learn geometry. No, sir. This explains all the whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> all right, what other, what, what, what kid do you want to talk about next? Uh, What did you say could be combined with squid? Zigzag. We could talk about zigzag. Oh, yeah, that's the one with the hair. Hey, how about I give you my cookie and you let me dig your hole? Come on, take it. Look, I get it, all right? I'll dig my own hole from now on. Let me eat my lunch. <laughs> he isn't going to take it. Come here. Eat the cookie. Oh. What? Oh. Back off, man. Hey, 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 hey. Oh. What's going on here? Come on. Not the mom. We was just fooling. Yeah, right? just fooling. Oh, I saw what was going on. Come on, mom. Go on, Stanley. Teach him a lesson. Hit him back. Yeah, teach yeah, me a lesson. It's like Zigzag's most important scene. Yeah. And in comes Professor Weirdo. Um, I, again, acting very well. Like, even upon what hearing it is still really good. Like, it sounds like a a seasoned actor. It wasn't just like, hey, let me, like, the, the realness and how he was like, I'm mocking you. Yeah. But also, I am the bigger fish. Like, you know. And, and Zigzag is a tall kid. Yeah. Like, he's the tallest in the camp. Or at least in this tent, and he, like you know, is just sitting there intimidating Stanley. Yeah, yeah, it's done very well. It actually reminded me of uh, reminds me of a kid I worked with um, a couple of years back when I was doing that stuff that I was doing, uh, and he was my favorite kid, <laughs> and he was very much this kid in this moment, very much a bull. He loved him so much. I hope he's doing good. This is a casualty of the adaptation, but Zigzag in the book, it describes his mental health a bit more. He has, a, he has, a, like, in the movie, they mentioned it briefly. Like, they, they squeeze it in on like a line, but they don't really touch on it. But he has acute paranoia, uh-huh. you know, but he probably, he's probably schizophrenic. Um, I think, like, he has mental problems and he needs medication and, uh, and they definitely don't, he's sweating it out out there. Yeah. And so the, like, he, he gets in a fight with Stanley. And he constantly is presented as kind of paranoid, mm-hmm. you know, in, yeah, the, in d- the book, at least. Yeah, they definitely like calmed that down. And I, yeah. I didn't get that. I think there was a yeah, like maybe a line or two saying like oh, yeah. about it. But like, that's definitely not how it came off in the movie. He's presented like he he's the one who is drawn to like tall tales mm-hmm. and like, you know, like conspiracy theories r- around the camp. Like, oh, yeah, the warden. The warden's got cameras everywhere. He you know, did in say the that. shower. Yeah. And they say it again, it's like very, you know, quick. Mm-hmm. But he does say that in the movie. Yeah. 
I think that I'm glad that they like cut that because we don't need more media representation of mental health done poorly, especially in a kids movie, which if somebody <laughs> suffers for that in their on their playground, they're going to be getting zigzag jokes. So I'm glad that it was cut. Um, but that is interesting. Uh, I wonder how it was portrayed in the book if it was done well. I can't remember. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't expect you to remember, and I'm not about to read. I was going to, but I didn't. <laughs> Who do you want to talk about next? Um, Magnet. Hey guys. What? Anybody want some sunflower seeds? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, I can't help it, man. My hands are like magnets, for real. You know, magnet fingers. fingers. My hand can go. That's it over oh, here, man. Yeah, I'll take some of those. Yep. So uh, magnets, a little pickpocket, or like yeah, his hands are like magnets. He steals Mister Sir sunflower seeds at one point. Mister Sir doesn't learn to lock his car. (laughs) He does. Yeah. (laughs) That's the Stanley steals Mister Sir's car at one point. I think this is one of those scenes that kind of like shows that he can get away with it Mm -hmm. if he's smart about it because because magnet just steals the sunflower seeds from the front seat of the car. Right. 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 Um, I don't know. I don't in this particular scene. There's not much for me to say about Magnet, but I, also yeah. But I, I will say I, I do appreciate the fact that even in the book he is present. He's a Latin kid. You know, mm. he's Latino, and the 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 detents diverse. You know, you got white yeah. kids, you got black kids, you got a Latin kid. You know? Yeah, got some mixed kids in there. Um, and Magnet like is like he's got the accent and everything. You know, it's like this isn't like you know you know th- like this is a you know Hispanic kid. Yeah. That um, it's just trying to survive in this desert. Is there anything that you remember that stands out from the book about this character? No, but I have a, another scene with Magnet. I actually have two scenes from with Magnet instead of just the one because <laughs> he actually has like some character development or like some backstory that he talks about later. Oh, okay, okay. What about you, Jose? What do you like? I like animals. That's what got Magnus in here in the first place. <laughs> Man, it's criminal the way they keep them locked up in cages. No, Jose, what you did was criminal. No, no, I tell them, Magnus, they wanted a thousand bucks for just one puppy. What? Yeah, I would have made it out. My pocket didn't start barking. <laughs> <laughs> That laugh, man. <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like after you read, the, after you watch the movie and then you read the book, you can't not hear Magnet talk with that accent in that mm-hmm. voice done. Uh, was it Miguel Castro? Right. In his voice. It's like he is Magnet. Mm-hmm. And I think Luce Sakar even told him that like in, in the, the oral history I told uh, Miguel Castro talked about how Luce Sakar, when he met him, told the actor, you are exactly what I pictured Magnet to be. <laughs> you know, like you're exactly him. So it's pretty neat. That is neat. And uh, I, I don't know, like the, the Magnet's like talk about how he likes animals and that got him in trouble because he, I think like it's one of those things where it's like Magnet has a good heart, mm-hmm. but poor judgment, you know, bad <laughs> environment, I guess. Intrusive thoughts. <laughs> I'm going to let all of these things free in my pocket. Yeah. And probably, yeah. Not a great, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> End of thoughts. This is it. Sucks that like, yeah. What he did, he probably committed grand theft because he stole a thousand dollar puppy. But like, a child stole a puppy because he was worried about it. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah, we're not at the justice segment yet. He's a child, but he's more. I don't know. I know Stanley's thirteen. I know some of these boys are older than him. 
Some are younger, but I think that Magnet is older, maybe 14 or 15. Yeah. A 15-year-old Latino boy, we don't believe that he was doing it because he was sad. Or worried about the wealth of the, or the, the health of the puppy. Yeah. That's definitely not why he was doing it. Yeah. Quote, unquote. But that's Magnet. Who's next? Um, I think we're up to the armpits. Uh, armpit. Hey, Theodore, is there a place where I can fill my canteen up with water? I know he smells that. Joe, my name... Is not Theodore. It's Armpit. Armpit. So the actor who plays Armpit, what is his name? He only had like two scenes. He had like a single line. Byron Cotton. Byron or Byron? Byron. Mm. But uh, he, I, he's he got a, like a very natural charisma about him. Like Armpit's kind of lovable, even though he... It, so in the book, he has a lot more scenes because mm-hmm. he... He's put in charge of Stanley. He's Stanley's mentor oh, at the right, start, right, right. you know. So he, at first, like he toughens Stanley up and like takes Stanley under his wing and kind of gets him set up at the camp, and mm-hmm. you know. And he's also the comic relief, like you know, he's a heavy kid. He's talk like it, throughout the book they talk about he doesn't shower. He smells really bad, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's kind of a comic relief thing in in the movie too. Yeah. Like, but like, there's a scene where he's like dancing and he lifts his arms up and everyone's like, "Oh, you smell so bad." Put those away. And honestly, he does have a lot of scenes in the movie, as I was just being facetious. He he does a lot of talking and moving. I am thinking uh, now, though, book-wise, where they made partners because they were both overweight. That's, prob- that's probably true. Oh, my gosh. Does, does uh, Armpit lose weight in the book? I, I don't hmm. remember them talking about But, like, he's always described as a heavier kid. Yeah. Uh, I think he does a good job. I think he still does a good job of, like... It the book does the movie does a good job of like having him take him around and tell him certain things, and even on different points, uh, like explaining the hierarchy. But it is it is a lot of backseat. Yeah. Um, but like when he is on screen, when he is talking, it's very like he's very affable. He uh is does a good job. <laughs> you know, the, I, I did not g- capture this clip, but the one scene I remember that really shows vulnerability for Armpit, and this is at the end of the movie, Yeah, when Stanley is going home, you mm-hmm. know, Armpit walks up and says, hey man, look up my mom's, you know, tell her I'm okay. Yeah. Tell him Theodore said I was okay, you know, or I was sorry. Tell her Theodore said he was sorry. Yeah, because you're not okay. <laughs> you're definitely, definitely not okay. I was like, that did a lot to endear people to Armpit. Yeah. I mean, I liked him before. He was a sweet kid. What else we got? Got two more. X-ray. That was some lame crap you pulled. What? Look, man, you ever find anything? Give it to me, you understand? I've been here for over six months and never found anything. No one has. Why should you get a day off when you just got here? You know what I'm saying? It's only fair, right? Right? Right. So I call it informed decision, dog. So X-Ray is the top dog at the camp. He's been there the longest. He's yeah. got most seniority. He is close to going home. Wait, of the whole camp or, or, or just D10? D10. D10. Okay. Yeah, he's he's the one with the most seniority. Mm-hmm. And ever like he is the most evident of that hierarchy you talked about. Yeah. He is clearly at the top. Mm-hmm. He calls the shots, and that's what he's doing here. He's asserting his dominance over Stanley because Stanley. Like, finds a fossil in one of his holes, and he's like, oh, this is interesting. So he shows it to Pendanski, and he's like, do I get the day off? Mm-hmm. And Pendanski's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> the warden's not interested in that. And then X-Ray comes down, and it's like, 
yo, you find something, you give it to me. Yeah. I deserve a day off. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. He steals Stanley's bread at the beginning. You know, you worked. I worked all day. You didn't work at all. I get your bread. It's. I uh, say who gets to get water first. You know, he he sets like the, the order of people in mm-hmm. line to get water from the water truck. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, establishes the packing order very quickly. And uh, there's a lot of. I think uh, again, right? Like because we're talking about the acting, right? Her, yeah, not just yeah. the characters. I think the thing that is most notable in this performance is that it doesn't feel childish, right? Even though it's childish. He's a hardened. Right? He's a hardened kid. Yeah, uh, but it but it also doesn't. You know, like it could have been like no, like pester or posturing and stuff like that. But it feels very much like nope, no. <laughs> no you know uh and that he even though there's like jokes and, and different things like that he's very much the established ruler of this this area um and it comes off like properly yeah i think even when we were watching it together it's like that kid is such a good actor like at every point when he was on the screen i was like yeah you're killing it man that is brandon brendan jefferson mm-hmm. and he has he also has james dean energy like he he's so good in this movie. He's the standout performance, in my opinion. Yeah, I was gonna say that. I was like, Shia is doing a great job, but the, the pro- movie is. It's sad because he never really did anything beyond this. You know, yeah. like this is his big role. You know, and he's he's a San Bernardino kid. He's a local. Ah, yeah. So you know, considering this was his first ever role, and he did a really good job, but his first ever role was like six weeks of digging holes. And then however long filming was in 130 degree, you know, you live in San Bernardino, it's warm, but it's more windy than anything else. He might have been like, oh, if this is acting, yeah, maybe, I don't yeah, think I want to do this. Yeah, maybe he learned that acting wasn't for him, but he really knocks yeah. it out of the park with this performance. Like, yeah. he, he is very good. He's very, very good. Yeah, so uh, it's got to, you know, props to Mr. Jefferson because yeah. he, he rocks in this movie. I would even say, or I was like, he's the best actor in this movie, not just amongst the children, I think even amongst the adults. Not saying that they gave bad performances whatsoever, but like we're saying, he is the standout He's putting, yeah, he's putting, like, he's putting it all out there, you know. Some of the adult actors, like, they're seasoned actors, so they're kind of just, it just comes natural to them. They're they're not trying too hard. Mr. Sir, I think, is like, uh, John Voight, like, puts a lot into his performance, Mm -hmm. but everyone else is just kind of like... Yeah, not not coasting, but. not coasting, but it is very obviously it it is a kids movie, and they have had lots of work in other in other right. things. Yeah, uh, so something about the this is not mentioned in the movie at all, but he's called X Ray because it that is Pig Latin for his real name, which huh. is Rex. Huh. Yeah, I thought I mean, it was because his glasses were thick. That too, but <laughs> the, I learned what Pig Latin was. Because Ms. Verwill read this in class, explained <laughs> to us what Pig Latin was. Why is Pig? I'm going to like Google. I'm not. I'm going to forget. But like Pig Latin. Sounds like Carney speak, honestly. Yeah, it's rude. <laughs> pig English. What's that? But X-Ray. Rex. Mm-hmm. Got That's it. The uh, I'm going to use this up before we introduce the last kid, who's the most important yeah. over there than Stanley. You know, the second main character kind of, mm-hmm. you know. Before we met, even meet that kid, he has not been mentioned at once by any of these characters because they don't like him. Yeah. But uh, because X-Ray kind of represents the pecking order of the detent, I want to relate Stanley's experiences at Camp Green Lake to my experiences working at a certain parcel company. 
<laughs> what that like my first job my first real job mm-hmm. was working as a loader for a parcel delivery company okay the, the big one the one you all know you know the you've big, said it on the podcast the big brown one <laughs> okay i started literally like when i started there i could not stop thinking about this is freaking just like holes <laughs> we get there it, basically what we were asked to do we were worked in the dock house and you know eight of us each to a trailer right mm-hmm. big feeder trailer and you sat there all day packages were fed into your trailer from a sorter outside and you just picked them up stacked them on the other side of the trailer and it felt like digging a hole <laughs> it was like one trailer a day you know sometimes some did two you know some did two if they were like lighter but yeah one trailer a day once the trailer's full you go home mm-hmm. it felt just like holes and it was like when i got there the first day i'm taking the tour the supervisor showing me around and i'm walking to the dock house and i'm like walking from bay door to bay door and i see just dudes look at me probably like stanley did when he first got there you know it's like mm-hmm. he, he was walking through the holes and he sees like other kids like looking at him from their holes you know that's what it felt like fresh meat fresh meat here it comes you know and just like stanley i was you know i was mentored by a guy you know his name was poppy mm-hmm. <laughs> poppy trained me but just and just like holes everyone had a nickname mm. literally i had the exact same like conversation as stanley did with pendanski and x-ray you know it's like yo dog my name is on pit or whatever <laughs> you know and uh the supervisor at the time was like yeah everyone has nicknames here um you know you made it when you get a nickname which is literally what happens to stanley yeah oh i got that clip when he stanley gets his own nickname halfway through the book or in the movie too yeah so we'll talk about the last uh person in the thing Mm -hmm. caveman is the last person in no hey nobody messed with the caveman nobody did you see the caveman back then no 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 i don't want to mess with anybody hey you coming caveman 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 what caveman so i'm caveman Better than barf bag. Who, who was that kid? We'll talk about him later. <laughs> but that's it. That, that happened. That's a big payoff in the in the the book mm-hmm. is caveman earning his nickname because that's when he gets respect. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like what it felt like at UPS. It's like when you got a nickname, you were accepted into the group. Yeah, yeah. I think that. And it, I think it's interesting. I, well, I guess I want to know for yours because it's if you're watching the movie and it's possibly in the book, um, there's a build up to this nickname. It doesn't come out of nowhere. They keep calling him ne- ne- well, oh, this Neanderthal. Yeah, yeah. And stuff. And so we, it transitions to Caveman. Uh, and uh, the big brown pro- box, did you, you, did your nickname get gotten because of. So, okay, like what well, was funny? Gosh, this is such a stupid story. My first full day there. In the trailer, um, I, I, I obviously it probably wasn't drinking enough water. I was getting really nervous because my trailer was filling up, like f- it was getting close to filling, you know. And basically, if you can't get all of your boxes from the day sort into the trailer, they have to move into a second one, and that's more money they have to. That's a you know they have to bring on an extra driver to drive that second mm-hmm. trailer out, and they want to avoid that at all costs. Right. So I was kind of like. 
I felt like a lot of pressure to keep it to one trailer. Mm -hmm. And so towards the end, I'm like, I'm nervous. I haven't been drinking enough water. I'm exhausted. That's another thing. Uh, Stanley's experiences through Camp Green Lake reminds me of working there, you know, like Mm -hmm. starting as like a heavy guy, you know, heavier guy. I'm not very athletic to like slowly learning how to condition myself. (laughs) But I just threw up Uh, (laughs) at the end. I threw up on the floor. Yeah, felt like barf bag. No, and one of the guys like tried to like put, he tried to push this nickname, but it, you know, it didn't get over, which was, uh, he wanted to call me Ralph (laughs) because I threw up on my first day. But it, it didn't stick. But like the next day, I met another guy and he was just like, What's your name? I was like, Lloyd. And he's like, Oh man, just like Lloyd Christmas from. From Dumb and Dumber. Mm-hmm. So that became my nickname was Christmas for a long time. <laughs> Christmas. Lloyd Christmas. I mean, you dodged a bullet. <laughs> exactly. I got a good nickname. Lloyd Christmas wasn't too bad, you know. But we had like, you know, there was Poppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, who else was there? Ob- <laughs> There's a guy named Obama. Oh, wow. The half black, half white guy. Mm-hmm. So everyone called him Obama. Okay. <laughs> yep. Ugh. I'm yeah. glad that I've never had to work a job that's like, prison yeah, there's db <laughs> yeah i mean i have actually anyway uh so that 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 reminded me of that and like this is another the, the the obese thing in the book obviously doesn't get like a lot of screen time in the movie mm-hmm. neither does like kind of the the first few holes that stanley digs in the book are really important right mm-hmm. and this is mentioned in the movie i have it um this is also from the book but it's given more time it's so a water, dog. Get oh some water. God. I got a water truck, bro. First hole of the hardest, right? Let's go. So how'd it go your first day, young Nance? Got some blisters on you? Big fat blisters. Yeah. Don't worry. Everything turns to callus eventually. That's life. Nick. So, yeah, Stanley gets a lot of blister on his fingers, but you heard Magnet say it, and it's just a very throwaway line. Oh, first hole's the hardest, mm-hmm. right? That's repeated a couple times in the book. And you, the book is told from Stanley's perspective, right? So Stanley spends a lot of time thinking about that. And he comes to the conclusion that, no, the first hole is not the hardest. The second one is because <laughs> you're sore from having dug the first hole. Mm, that's you know, fair. Day two like, was always hard. It was like day one was hard, but the soreness of doing it the next day was even worse. Yeah. And so body. I thought that, w- that was always stuck with me as mm-hmm. a kid, like thinking about that. And that's literally what it was like at the Big Brown. <laughs> <laughs> this the second trailer was the hardest because your arms are sore from the first one. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the 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 seniority, the pecking order of Camp Green Lake really resembles like your, you know, your manual labor type job where it's like the guys who have been there the longest, they're on top. Mm-hmm. You know, they call the shots. The, the at, at UPS the guys who had been there the longest, they got first say if like, "Hey, we have more people than needed." Who wants to go home? And then it was like, you know, the guys on top, they got to go home if they yeah. wanted to. Um, and, and it was just like the just just like in the detent, the guy with the most seniority, he had the best trailer. He had mm-hmm. the easiest trailer. Ah. You know? It was like, you know, guys at the bottom, maybe not like I, I went in and they, they knew I couldn't handle the hardest trailer, mm-hmm. you know, so it was usually like the second or third best guy or second second or third from the bottom would get like the hardest trailers because mm. they'd been there long enough to, you know. To get it and have, like, muscle and stamina. Yeah, but they're also, like, you know, they can't be getting the easy stuff. Yeah. You know, so I I, I started in, like, you know, an easier trailer, moved to a harder one, and then moved to another harder one. <laughs> Before, like, my the end of my time there when I was in the easier one. Mm. 
it's how it works. Yeah. And uh, like in, in a lot of ways, like there was an x-ray of the group. Mm-hmm. There was a guy who was like, yo, dog, that's my trailer. Yeah. You know, I get air. I get air trailer. Mm. <laughs> that's mine. Okay. Because the packages are nothing. Because in holes, x-ray has his own shovel. His own special shovel mm-hmm. uh, be, that is shorter than all the other ones. Right. And the the logic is, if you have a shorter shovel, you have a sh- you get to dig shorter holes because the sho- the the shovel is there to like mark yeah how deep your hole is supposed to be yeah. And so it's like this little thing, but X Ray calls the shots. That's X Ray shovel. Mm-hmm. And if Stanley tries to grab it, X Ray is going to take it from him. Yeah, like he'll take everything. <laughs> and then. Uh, What's the other? Who's the, who's the last kid? There's no other kids. You got a crush on this there kid. There are zero kids in there. Zero, you say? <laughs> and this is zero. Say hello to Stanley, zero. You want to know why they call him zero? Because there's nothing going on in his stupid little head. How rude. <laughs> yeah, he's such a... We'll get to him. Pendanski, like, hates zero. Pendanski. With a panch, with a, with a passion. Mm-hmm. It's uncalled for. <laughs> it's uncalled for how much he hates this kid. Like, I don't get it. I mean, I get it, but I don't get it. It's like Pendanski, like in the movie, he's a little man. You know, he's kind of a shorter guy. And I think it's just one of those things where it's like, I'm going to pick out the smallest kid to make myself feel bigger and just yeah. pick on him, pick on him, you know? Ugh. Ugh. It's how he feels about that. Just ugh. Yeah. But describe Zero. Because um, he's important. He's like... Yeah. Probably the second main Small character. Small kid, big curly fro, doesn't talk a lot. That's that's literally it. Yeah, but then Stanley, you know, <laughs> develops a friendship with him because Zero, I think, like, warms up to Stanley. Mm-hmm. What are you laughing at? Oh, it's just something my mom wrote. She, uh, <clears throat> she said, I feel sorry for the little old lady who lived in the shoe because it must have smelled really bad. <laughs> Yeah, like the nursery rhyme. Yeah, I, I feel really awkward with you reading over my shoulder like that, so. I can't read. Can you teach me? That's like one of the first times when Zero like opens up a little bit. Mm-hmm. He feels safe with Stanley. And he's shot down immediately. Yep. Because Stan- we're we're in our, our brave little knob head. S- Stanley's trying to... Uh, maintain his street cred. Yeah. And he can't be teaching little Zero how to read because Zero has like no respect. Yeah. At this camp. Yeah. From any of the guys. So he needs to con- also treat him with no respect or he will be looked down upon. Yep. There's when 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 Caveman gets his nickname, X-Ray basically like pushes Zero to the back of the line and puts Stanley in front of him and says, "Stanley, this is your place now." Mm-hmm. Which is like, you know, visual metaphor. It's like, "Stanley, you are higher than Zero now." Yeah. Because you're caveman, you are higher than zero now. Yeah. It's such a like, I don't want to say it's a kid thing to do because it's not. It's kind of it's, like Lord of the Flies though. A little yeah. Bit. No. Yeah. It, it's that. But it it's a very calculated, like, uh, again, I'm not sure how old X-Ray is supposed to be, but that feels like 16, 17. Like you understand what you're doing and what you're creating in doing that. Yeah. But slowly we learn that Zero has a deeper backstory that... You know, kind of, he's crossed paths with Stanley before. And uh, Zero opens up to Stanley a little bit more. You know, Zero's not my real name. It's not? But even Panaski calls you Zero. 
My name's Hector. Hector Zeroni. Hector Zeroni. Nice to meet you, Hector. Nice to meet you. <laughs> 26 letters. So we can do five letters a day for four days, and then six letters on the fifth day. It's good math. I'm not stupid. I know everyone thinks I am, I just don't like answering stupid questions. So he's smart. He just don't like answering stupid questions. <clears throat> and his and name's Hector. And that is why I think Penancy doesn't like him because he's not stupid and he can see through Pandansky's weirdness. Pandansky is like also called himself Dr. Pandansky, but he's not a real doctor. Yeah, which we find out at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like he is constantly puffing himself up. Yeah. And he's using zero to do it. Yeah. Mm-mm-mm. But that's our main cast. Yeah. They're all sweaty, dirty, and gross and need a shower. A cold one and a warm one. And soap. But that's the thing about the novel Holes. It's not just Stanley's story. Yeah. It is a generation-spanning tale because there are three storylines that go on almost in like in unison. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the book features flashbacks constantly. Typically, how it worked in the book, it's like you get a Stanley chapter... Then you get a flashback chapter. Then you get Stanley chapter, flashback chapter, mm-hmm. right? And they would bounce back and forth. And there are three storylines. Mm-hmm. There's Stanley in the present day, at Camp Green Lake. What's the what's the, the second one? His great 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 pig stealing, good for nothing great grandfather. It was all because of your no good, dirty rotten pig stealing great great grandfather. And you yell nuts. It started in a little village in Latvia. He was shoveling in Morris Mackey's barn when Myra, his beautiful daughter, walked by. <laughs> and that was it. So what does your great-great-grandfather do? He goes to a fortune teller, uh, Madame Zeroni, for advice. All you think about is Myra Menke. I know. That's when our troubles began. Freaking Eartha Kit coming back. Love Eartha Kit. To, to, to steal the show. <laughs> playing Madame Zeroni. Hello, welcome back. A Latvian you are an fortune empress teller. and a queen. Latvian. 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 It must have been this must this, this must have been the twenties because uh, Latvia didn't become a country until after World War One. <laughs> mm. No, cowboys. <laughs> it, it was. It's called Latvia now. It's in the area that is now Latvia. Oh, maybe. Yeah. yeah I guess that makes sense because yeah, it's cowboy times. Yeah. Very confusing, um, but. Uh, that basically, Elia Yelnats, Stanley's no good, dirty, rotten, pig stealing great grandfather, uh, is in love with a woman in his mm-hmm. local village. Yep. And in order to win her heart, he has to offer a giant pig as the dowry. Right. Uh, but he doesn't have a giant pig. He's too poor. So what does Madame Zeroni's tell him? Uh, take one of my pigs, that small one, and oh, just play the clip. Okay. Here's what you do. Take the little one. But this solves nothing. So it will grow. Every day, you carry the pig up the mountain. Make it drink the water from the stream. While you sing. While you sing. But, she warns him at the end. Every day, the pig will get fatter. It's strong. Now, after you give the pig to Menke, you must carry Madame Zeroni up the mountain and sing while I drink so I can get strong too. 
But if you forget to come back for Madame Zeruni, you and your family will be cursed for always and eternity. Yep. Yep. And that's what he, the stupid idiot, he didn't come back for Madame Zeroni. He was too heartbroken and forgot. Yeah, because uh, the, the woman that he was trying to win her heart, she was a ditz and didn't, couldn't like commit Choose to him. It, yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Elia Yelnats forgets to take Madame Zeroni up the mountain and his family's cursed for always and eternity. Yep. But uh, hold to your promises, young mans. One thing about so th this this sequence featuring Elia Yelnats is basically told as one long sequence. Mm -hmm. It's like one extended flashback. And it's like done in like ten minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, not not even that probably. It's really quick. It gets a lot more pages in the book. You know, mm -hmm. like you 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 dwell on Elia Yelnats's story a bit more, and then in the movie they just kind of like get it over with quickly, which I guess makes sense. You have to do that. But yeah, I just. I, I know that this gets a lot, this, you dwell on this story a lot more in the book. Yeah, which I think, uh, I think in the movie it's very well paced. Uh, but that All does, things considered, for sure. Yeah, but that does bear to mind, bear to mind, that does make me wonder what was missing from it. Like, was it substantial? No, not but really. Like this, so the truncated version still gets all the important parts. You just maybe don't hear what the mountain looks like that he's climbing up. Yeah, up I something. guess so. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It, ha it loses a little bit of its importance when you're not like there dwelling mm -hmm. on it. But like, it, it's not a big deal. They cut out what they needed to. It's just the fat. Yeah. Yeah, because it was just told as a story. Yeah, as like almost like an extended montage almost. Yeah. Yep. And uh, I know you wanted to use this as an opportunity to discuss like connections between people. Like, describe your ideas here. Generational connections. Yeah, but like not just gen uh, because it also involves a second story. Okay. That we haven't talked about yet. What's so, the second story? Uh, between the oh, Wild West, the West, the 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 the. Manifest Destiny. <laughs> the um, story of Kate Barlow and Greenlake, basically. Yeah, so you, in the book, they also flash back to a story that takes place at Camp Greenlake or at Greenlake before it became a horrible, desolate yeah, before desert. Before it was a camp. It was it literally was, a green lake. It was a green lake. And you, you learned the history of that area. Mm -hmm. And it involves... Kate Barlow, who is a local school teacher, mm -hmm. and Sam the Onion Man. Does he not have a name accredited to him? A last name? Onions! Get your onions here, folks! God's own chosen vegetable! Nature's magic vegetables right here, folks! Mr. Collinwood, let me see that head of yours. My head? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's what I thought. I got exactly what you need. Just rub this on his head every night, Mrs. Collinwood, and before you know it, his hair's gonna be as long and as thick as Mary Lou's mane. Can I use onion juice to rub on my eyebrows to make them thicker? No. But Sam says that it works on your head. That's one of those things where I'm like, Sam probably is like telling the truth on some of these, but he's also a snake oil salesman. <laughs> Look, there is not much work for a black man in these times. Yeah, so Sam is a black man if you didn't already recognize his, uh, his voice. The voice of the actor? Or does he have the tenor of a black man? No, Be very careful. No, no, no. Dulé Hill is his name? Dulé? It's got mm -hmm. an accent on it. Mm -hmm. Is that right? 
Yes. I've never heard it pronounced. Dulé Hill. He is who? From who? From where? He's from a lot of stuff, but mostly Psych and West Wing. And he's from a lot of stuff. He's the black guy from Psych. This is true. Um, I obviously saw Holes before I saw Psych. Same. But I did not recognize him. Like, I watched a lot of Psych and then I rewatched Holes. I was like, oh, it's Gus. He's it's, I mean, he's always Sam to Onion Man to me. Mm, he's like, always Gus to me. <laughs> and, and yeah, this whole storyline, this one does get more screen time than the other flashback does. But because uh, yeah. it's more plot it's relevant. It's more prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, nope. Let's keep yours plot, plot relevant. But you, you, it's still like it's an extended like flashback where mm-hmm. you, you, it shows these two characters that until later you don't really know what the connections are. It's like, oh wow, we're just watching this flashback of, you know, people living in some at some point in the twentieth century. Yeah, the nineteenth century even. Yeah, and a quick rundown of what the story is. Right, is um, they're in the town of Green Lake, uh, and there is a lake. There is a Sam. And he sells uh, onions and onion products. And there is also a woman who runs a school. She's a cool school teacher. Her name is Kate. Um, Kate is single and not ready to mingle. The ancient Egyptians knew the secrets of the onions. High potent juices can cure stomach aches and toothaches, measles and mumps, rheumatism, hemorrhoids. <laughs> if you don't believe me, just ask Mary Lou. All she eats is onions, and she's almost 100 years old. How would you know, Sam? You're not a day over 25. Nature's magic vegetable, Miss Catherine. Miss Catherine. She's not Kate yet. She's Uh, Miss Catherine. Yes, Miss Catherine. Also, I'm going to take that as a reference to Black Don't Crack. (laughs) You're not a day over 25. No, ma'am, I'm 46. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wonder how old he was, actually. Um... so, yeah, so they're working at this place. She is a white woman. He is a black man. Um, she's very pretty, and most of the men who are single... Including the richest and, man in town. And probably some of the unsingle ones are very interested in her. Uh, she teaches children, but she also teaches grown adults. The richest man, as you can guess, is the worst. Yep. <laughs> for a number of reasons. Um, and doesn't understand the word no. So, uh, Kate is not interested in a relationship. She's just interested in, or Miss Catherine is not interested in a relationship. She's just interested in teaching her kids, building up her school, and maybe, you know, getting some handiwork done, which is where Sam comes in. He offers for free, bro, bro, don't do that, to, uh, help fix some stuff. I can fix that. Sam, are you going to try to tell me now that your onions are a cure for a leaky roof? No. I'm just good with my hands. I built my own boat, you know. I needed to get across the lake to my onion field. Well, then I guess you'd be in real trouble if your boat leaked. I'll tell you what. I'll fix that roof in exchange for three jaws of your spice peaches. It's a deal. So that's the deal. That is a deal. What is spiced peaches? I don't know. I want to make them. It's so about it sounds, to be summer. It sounds like candied peaches or something. It sounds like like preserves. Yeah. But you know, but like spiced. Like well, what? yeah, she's got them in like mason jars. Yeah. And she like that's his payment. So she's given him like, you know, 
20 jars of spice peaches for every project that. he does at the schoolhouse. That's and, so many peaches, my guy. But I guess if you, all you do is eat onions, you're going to eat something sweet. He's over here. He, he fixes her roof. He fixes her door. He fixes her window and uh, reads poetry to her. Fixes her heart. <laughs> That's the biggest pickup line, right? Like she's crying because she's like, I miss Sam. He fixed. No, she was crying over a book. Oh, okay. <laughs> She but was reading something very moving. I thought it was because he finished all his work, you know, and there's no many, no more projects that she could use as an excuse to keep him around. So she's like crying because she's sad. And then he comes in and he's like, I can fix that. <laughs> I just thought she was just reading a book. And they do a little smooching. <laughs> Ew, cut that. Smooch, 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 smooch. You can keep that one in. <laughs> um, Yeah. Uh, uh, They do some smooching, but... As you know, people be nosy. And so some rich jerkwad uh, saw them kissing. And then do you know what happens? When a black man kisses a white woman? They, well, shoot, him in, they shoot him in the know, lake. Yep. Yep. So he dies. Uh, and she gets really sad about it. Cries. And then uh, turns up the later the next day to the sheriff's place because she went to the sheriff for help and he uh, tried to essay her <laughs> because uh, he was drunk and uh, she already kissed the black man. So why can't she kiss uh, this guy? So she gives him a kiss right after she shoots him to death. And then she becomes the notorious outlaw kissing Kate Barlow who steals, steals from the rich, shoots him dead and kisses him on the forehead as like a, you know, there's your There's kiss a calling you card. Yeah. And then she goes all around and um does that to all the all the white men who hit on her. Including Stanley's great grandfather, Stanley Elnett's the first. But she just robs him. She doesn't steal from him. She because there's something in his soul that doesn't seem as egregious, I guess. Yeah, she doesn't kill him. She robs him. She doesn't kill him. Yeah. Which is why there are more Yelnetses, because he's not dead. Right. Um, and so the connections are all here, right? Like, because we start in La of what would eventually become Lavia, Lafia, Latvia, Latvia. I have, I have a weak tongue and, um, with a family curse because somebody didn't do what they said they were going to do. And we settle in Texas for some reason. Uh, and in there we meet with Kate Barlow and Kate takes all of the treasure, which is, you know, bad luck, but that's what this family's all about, um, and buries it somewhere. And she happens to bury it in Green Lake, where the atrocity happened to her. And the whole town is cursed because as soon as Sam is killed, like, you know, nature is like, well, it's never going to rain here again. Yeah. And, like, and so, like, it, literally Camp Green Lake is a cursed town, and that's why it's, like, dead and desolate and no rain falls there. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Sir says, once upon a time, there was a little town where it never rained. The yeah. end. <laughs> and they're in that town. And yeah. And so I think that, like, it's really interesting how the, the writer wove all of these things together, right? Like, because, I mean, technically all of it takes place in the same, probably county. Yeah, except for Latvia. Except for Latvia, right? But a majority of the story takes place probably about in the same county. And this family has stayed here. Like, both of these, these like, cursed um, places have kind of, like, circled each other for generations. And Kate 
uh, sorry to continue with the story, which you guys definitely know, spoilers, uh, buried the treasure in the dried up lake somewhere. Um, not the treasure, buried some of her, her goods. Her fortune. Her fortune, and mostly the fortune that she stole from um, Stanley's family. And Stanley finds it, right? Well, There's other stuff that definitely yeah, happens. It's, it's um, That's what goes into the mystery stuff, because like all these plot elements are kind of left dangling, and then towards the end, they all tie in together. Mm-hmm. Um, and... When Louis Sakar wrote the book, he's like, "Listen, I, you know, I had the idea for these kids, like, to, you know, build character. They're meant to de- dig these holes out in the desert, right? It's like, well, why are they digging these holes? And then he's like, oh, it's obviously a treasure hunt, you mm-hmm. know. Whoever's making them do this are searching for a golden treasure, and basically, it's like free labor, you know. Yeah. Make make kids dig a hole a day throughout the lake, you know, bed mm-hmm. until they find the treasure." Mm-hmm. I think that it's interesting the way that like these things are connected uh, because you find that the warden, whom we didn't meet. Uh, I, I can play a clip. Played by Sigourney Weaver. She's great. This where you found it? Yes, ma'am. Dr. Pendanski, drive x-ray back to camp. Give him double shower tokens and a snack. But first, fill everyone's canteen. I already filled them. Excuse me? I had already filled them when you drove up in the car. Excuse me? Did I ask you when you last filled them? No, you didn't, but... Excuse me. Now, these fine boys have been working hard. Don't you think it just might be possible they have taken a drink since you filled their canteens? Scotty Weaver has played the most intimidating woman in the whole movie. <laughs> True. More intimidating than Kate Barlow. Um, so she is a direct descendant of the rich man. Trout Walker. Trout Walker. Trout is such a name. Hey, can we have a daughter? Can we name her Trout? Trout Lloyd. No. (laughs) Um, right. So she's a direct descendant of that man. Uh, and this kind of connection, he wanted Miss Catherine, right? Um, that was his possession in his mind. Like she's pretty she's smart she's living on my land i'm rich i deserve her um and if she wants something else i'm going to take that away so that she knows that she she will have me right and then she obviously goes and does murder to people but not him for some reason and comes back to this place to leave something that again mourn her mourn her dead lover to mourn her dead lover yes actually um but like in in coming back and like burying this uh this wealth he's like well this is all my property and that now belongs to me right um and this kind of like trickle down of wanting ownership over something that is kate or something that is and it falls down to the warden as well right like wanting this kind of ownership and being willing to abuse first in her grandfather power and wealth uh and here power and um evil <laughs> i don't know uh to get these things what they believe is their right is yeah. that what they deserve and and then like the just the parallels there like that that is the same story being like carried that's the same story that's being carried from uh i would say like story b to story c right yeah uh and then story a being just uh, a young man like wanting to do more for himself and like find love right 
uh, and a woman wanting to help something that she sees like, that's probably not the best for you, but okay. And then find strength and how that uh, carries through to just the uh, Stalinskis. That's from Teen Wolf. The, uh, the Yelnatses? Yelnatses, Stanleys. Um, to- Cause so, yeah, if we, if we, I did not mention the Stanley Yelnats is a palindrome. Uh, Yel- Yelnats is Stanley backwards. Yes. So that's kind of cute. <laughs> kind of cute. Um, but like them, the, the Yelnats trying to find something to like, you know, right. Okay. It beca- it, it did go from like, I just want like love and to set up a, a home and family to just kind of, I want to be out of this curse. <laughs> and, and that's where it went through. But even right, like wealth then became like a, a, a thing for their family. Like, Oh, I need to have enough so that I can buy me a wife. Uh, it doesn't work. Whatever. I'm going to try my luck in America. And now we're bad luck. But like the uh, person, the grandfather who made a lot of money was trying to do something, was trying to build like a home and security. And that's got taken. And his father, our Stanley's father, is also always chasing that like that dollar because they want to build something. And if, if we have this kind of wealth, then this can't. Um, be taken away from me, whatever it is, you know? Yeah. Um, and how, like, these things kind of just drag through, but how they all come back together to com- complete the story, right? Yeah. The thing that we haven't talked about is uh, Madame Zeroni, right? And her Z- connection. Madame Zeroni, you know, sounds very familiar to uh, Hector Zeroni. Yeah. And you learn that, yeah, that's H- H- Hector is a descendant of Madame Zeroni. Yeah. And that relates back to the the whole curse and the whole, you know, the thing. It's like, Stanley's great great grandfather was meant to carry Madame Zeroni up a mountain and sing to her and let her drink from the stream, you know. So that, that she could be strong. You know, maybe Stanley's going to carry young Hector up a mountain, sing to him, and have him drink from a stream. Yeah. But I even think that that's like the more you watch Zero uh, throughout the movie, right? Like the kind of parallel breaks a little bit, but in like good ways, right? Where Zeroni couldn't move by herself, couldn't do much. And it was like, I need you to come so I can like be strong. Um, but Zero is extremely strong. <laughs> He's just unmoored, like physically choked out a kid, almost killed many people. <laughs> He's very strong, right? But he is unmoored, right? Like in this kind of way uh, where Zer- uh, Madame Zeroni could not move uh, and Zero cannot stay still. Yeah. And that uh, this is the closing off of these things, right? Like these these families that like have stopped trusting in a lot of things and it comes back down to uh stanley and, Z- and zero like mending these wounds between each other uh and between like these generations of things without like necessarily actively knowing right like that that is what they're doing but just by doing it yeah so i i mean i i think that's that was like one of the strongest things in the book is the fact that all these dangling plot threads are all tied back together in a very satisfying way mm-hmm and that, you know, relates all the themes together too. you know, all the themes of like generational issues and, mm-hmm. you know, class issues, race issues, you know, and all those things get night, you know, tight, you know, tightly wound <laughs> back up. But uh, the movie pulls it off. Yeah. Pretty well. All things considered. Yeah. Because it's hard to juggle three storylines. This is true. Um, you know, you know in pick, 90 minutes. Yeah. I was like, this isn't like Cloud Atlas, which is like a four hour movie. Or uh, yeah, <laughs> or Lord of the Rings. Well, I mean, extended version. Well, it doesn't have like three, you know, histor- you know, three historical periods all represented, kind of thing. Fair. 
But is that all you want to say on that part of the movie? Yeah. Want to talk about justice? Sure. The justice system? Because that's another aspect of the film that we kind of, as we watched it the last time, we talked a lot about it because it's like, it's, you know, in, in essence, it is very dystopian. It's mm-hmm. like, oh man, this is horrible correctional boot camp out in the desert. Everything in this world is broken when it comes to law. Yeah. Like, you you had a lot of, you you were quite taken aback by the judge of that put Stanley in this whole situation. I could send you to jail and I would not lose one bit of sleep over it. But I don't know what good that would do. There is currently a vacancy at Camp Greenlake. They have troubled youth build character. The choice is yours. Camp Greenlake or jail. Uh, well, I never been to camp before. 18 months, Camp Greenlake, son. Camp Greenlake is in that man's pocket. <laughs> like, it, it, I think I felt so strongly about this because it very quickly on the heels followed his, like, quote-unquote conviction, you know? Like, uh, and I, I remember being like, well, what, what, do you, what do you mean? And then suddenly we're in court, right? Like, because, oh, we found this kid on the street with these shoes. We're bringing him home. Uh, may we enter? We're entering. Oh, he has posters of the guy. He must have done it. And that's the police work, right? Like, that's um, that's what is done. And that is enough to take this 13-year-old child uh, to court. Well, that, so th- that was an element of this scene that I thought was interesting was the Yelnats all were like, well, we got to hire a lawyer. And then the mom's like, we don't have money for a lawyer. We'll just tell them the truth. It'll be fine. But the problem is, like, I think that shows the justice system favors those with money. Yeah. And the fact that the Yelnats have no money, they have no one who's going to make a good defense on Stanley's behalf. Yeah. Stanley did nothing wrong. Yeah. And a good lawyer would have poked holes in the prosecution pretty effectively. It's like, do you have evidence that Stanley was present Mm -hmm. to steal these shoes? Stanley, what, how did you get the shoes? It's like, Oh, they, I was walking under a freeway overpass and they hit me in the head jury, you know, you know, ask the, the officers, do you think that it's possible that someone could have thrown these shoes over the overpass and they just happened to hit where Stanley was walking, you know, ask important questions create reasonable doubt but because they have no money for a lawyer stanley was left out to dry yeah and the judge it's i mean there i didn't see a jury present so it sounds like the judge made the the judgment on his own Mm -hmm. they opted for that you know and the judge is like well you did this yeah and i'm gonna send you to jail and not feel bad about it yeah and like making that very scary because i mean like first time juvenile delinquent like you know yeah and he's he's got no record it would have been fine like he shouldn't have done anything it was just like okay we're gonna get you off with a warning like don't do that mess or like because it if it was something like grand theft then there would be a full jury it well no i mean be... you you can choose that you can choose to have the judge make the judgment oh, okay with no jury trial. yeah i don't know any of the things yeah. about law um that's you, what it seems like this... to me the yelnats is like well the judge will listen he'll have sense deep eye roll and then just like oh i'm gonna send you to this place like what do you know about this place like why are like brochures or or what you literally like it's the worst kind of place what does this guy stanley goes in thinking it's an actual camp with a lake yeah he gets off the bus and he's like where's the lake yeah like and the pitch to that is the kids dig holes okay at camp green lake okay have you done any research like you see how hot it gets there it's texas like so it's very much just like okay that's super corrupt that's very much like we're just 
sending things we don't want to deal with. Yeah, um, I, I don't have a lot of clips of it, but like the warden and Pendanski and Sir are incredibly corrupt mm -hmm. and they do a lot of horrible things, yeah. including like, oh yeah, you know, Zero went missing. Just delete him from the records. Yeah. Um, and they're, and they're even before that, right? Like they're, as they're, as he's traveling there, he's getting like eyed by the correct, correctional officer in a very, very just intense way, um, like intimidating way. And then when he gets to the office, the officer is standing there, like hearing all these things and it's clearly hot, right? And, um, he offers a drink to the cop and the cop, uh, or, and Stanley goes to reach for it. And he's like, what are you doing? And gives it the cop. And the cop is also looking at him like he's crazy. Like it's not a hundred and something degrees. You're thirsty, Stanley. You know, like. I better get used to it because you're going to be thirsty for the next 18 months. How many people are just seeing it and then turning their heads, right? Like the, this is not necessary. This is not necessarily. This isn't justice, right? Like this isn't a justice system. This isn't a correctional system. This is a place to throw people of color and people in low income, right? Because like, yeah, the the Stanley's family is or, white. Or vulnerable white. people like Zigzag who have mental problems. Yeah, exactly. And it's just like, but the, the Stanley's family is white, but they're very clearly like living in low rent yeah. in apartments in amongst other people of ethnic backgrounds. And, and like, it's just like, we don't, like you said, you don't have money. We don't have time to waste for you. On you, let's go, right? And so- the setup as a whole is just kind of like horrifying, right? And this isn't me saying, oh, it's a bad book, it's a bad movie. This is me saying like when we sit back and we like look realistically at this world that has been built that we're spending time in, it's America. It's very realistic and it's very sad, you that, know? That's the strength of the book is the book is touching on important cultural themes in a very like, I don't know, pretty potent way, you know? Things like race and class and their relationship with the justice system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's it's important. I just I, I also think like uh, it definitely was over a lot of kids' heads because that's just not oh, yeah, how you would yeah. think about it whatsoever. Because he had to make it an adventure story as yeah. well. Yeah, you know, and like there's a treasure hunt. And there's a, you know, uh, hidden treasure is a mystery. You know, there's like you know, uh, you know, a journey mm -hmm. across Camp Green Lake in the desert. You know, it's sort of like like uh, like Lawrence of Arabia almost. Mm -hmm. You know, it's got that feel, but at the same time, it's also dealing with important themes yeah. considering it's set at a correctional facility with troubled youths. Mm -hmm. It's just it's just upsetting that there is no justice. Yeah. I think about one, like loving that the movie was so multicultural and stuff. Like I, I think it was great. There was lots of different races all portraying like different parts and important parts. But I'm thinking I was like, oh, most of the background characters are, you know, like it's still like very well peppered, but it was just kind of like, the demographic is not white, <laughs> you know, yeah. and like how, again, realistic that is and what that says about things. And then like the predominantly white kids uh, I see serving food like are not in the like they're not doing as much hard work. They've got it easier. Uh, they're still there. You know, I remember sitting and going like, what did they do to be able to get on mess duty? Like, why are they not out there building holes? Like, what is this? You know, um, and then, like, going to the adults that are here, right? Like, not just uh, Pendanski, Mr. Sir, and the warden. Uh, but there are adults all over the place because there are hundreds of kids and you need more. And they are all bought into this, right? Yep. Uh, and that's wild. Like, what does that say about what we really think about these children? Because nobody here thinks that we're going to release these children and they're going to be better 
it's we're going to release these children and they're going to be just as bad or worse and get set back here because we have conditioned them for this. Like there is no going to serve our purpose, continue to help us search for this treasure. Yeah. You know, and I think like Mr. Sir is like the least offensive in of the adults. The warden is next up on the list because she's scary <laughs> and wants obviously one thing. Uh, and she doesn't care about the health or well-being otherwise, right? Like, she can put on a face and stuff. But the, the scariest adult is Pendanski, right? Like, because he has an acute hatred for children, but he's here, right? Yeah. And so my brain, right? Like, it's probably too much for a kid's movie. And mm, I'm sorry. I won't say all the things that I think about him. I should have said them off mic to you. I'll say them after. But, like, what kind of person who hates the demographic a certain different demographic goes and works with that demographic, right? That's how you get like the night angel nurse who like goes in and literally kills patients. That's how you get like this is serial killer behavior. Yeah, this is very well, much. They they literally they they in all intents and purposes attempt to murder Hector Zeroni. Yeah, I have that clip. I'm ill. I'm ill. I'm feeling queasy. Take it or leave it. Still pouting. No, I'm not pouting. I'm just asking, are we sure that he had no family? He was a ward of the state. He was living on the streets when he was arrested. Is there some prissy caseworker who might ask questions? He had nobody. He was nobody. I want you to destroy his records. He was never here. Can you get into the state files from our computer? I can do anything. But I'm telling you, no one is going to come looking for him. No one cares about Hector Zeroni. Hector ran away, by the way. He's yeah. out there in the desert, in the elements with no water or food. And they were like, well, we, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call for a search party. We're going to let him die out there. Then we'll call. Or or no, they don't even, for him, it's like they don't even care. No, we're just going to delete his records. Let him die out there and never speak of this again. Yeah. And I think even in that moment, I would say Pendanski is more mad uh, that his punching bag is gone and that his punching bag got a hit on, on that him too, yeah. before he left than anything else. He's just like, oh, now I've got to pick. And he does very quickly turn to caveman as his next target. But like, and, and they, they do it again, right? Like, but even more um, insidious when when Stanley eventually runs away, they're like, okay, we'll, we'll just wait for a couple weeks then report it because then he'll definitely be dead. Report it, do a thing, like because they're actively just trying to cover their they want to continue to do the things that they're doing yep. um and like if this was a that di a different book if this was that lot the the first screen play that was written i could see how very dark this could get right like how very dark it already is there are just things that i'm just like ah uh, i i i'm like most of the scenes with pendanski i'm like please don't leave him alone with a child like i'm very scared like yeah he's it's, a monster it's not good. It's not good. But this is where well, he's a good judge... villain. I think he's a good villain. Yeah, he's a good villain, right? But like this, in this talk of justice, right? Like nobody comes to check up on this place. Yeah. Like the only person who does is somebody for Stanley because um, <laughs> basically his luck got broken and his family is now able to actually fight <laughs> for uh, the rights that they like should have, and that's the only reason someone comes because now. Now they have money. Yeah. Now they have something uh, that is worthwhile in our society. And so now we will help you get your kid. Oh, your kid probably was innocent. Oh, this was unfair, wasn't it? And that is the only reason anybody comes to check up on this place where a kid literally allowed himself to be bit by a rattlesnake to get out. Yeah. 
like it, it, the, I, I was like the fact that it goes to sh like I think the the book and the movie explore like class a lot and really well mm -hmm. and, and like how disposable zero is because he had no money and he was living on the street when they found him it's like that's a disposable kids to these people it's like we can yeah. just erase him from history and no one will care yeah you know it's like that's that's horrifying and like i think you know it's it's kind of a you know condemnation of of how we deal with class and crime you know what i mean like low-income crime like mm -hmm. how we deal with it it's like just make it go away yeah make these people just go away so i don't have to see them yeah like Sucks. I have a clip of like Zero like talking about his homelessness with Good. his family. I thought that you know it's kind of interesting. I don't know. I don't know if we want to dwell on it any longer. But I, I will say that was a moment I forgot about. That like going back to my last point about how connection because we we're saying this is all happening in the same county, but literally in that moment it was like, oh, I love that park. I used to go there all the time. I used to sleep in that park. That these two pair, like that these two lives, that these two families, that these three stories have always been right next to each other. Yep. Weren't always homeless. I remember we used to live in a lot of different places. And then we didn't live anywhere. Must have been hard. My mom had problems, but she would try so hard to make a better life for us. Yeah. She always used to say, I love you more than air. She couldn't take me everywhere she went. I used to ask her, like, on a porch or a playground. They wonder she didn't come back. And then he describes sleeping at a at a park in like the like the tunnel. Yeah. And and that is really sad, but it's also a reality, right? Yeah. Like, I think the reality in that because later he says like she just didn't come back, right? Like we couldn't find her. And the reality is people who face homelessness, especially when they have families, like what do you do, right? Like I yeah. want to keep my kids with me. Um, but would it be better for them in the foster system? The answer is always no. The answer is almost always no. And, but are they safe with me? Are they not? Okay, well now I'm being picked up. Oh, well now it's illegal to be homeless in this part of the state. So I have to leave. I left my kid over there. Let me go and get him because I was trying to figure out how to get money. Oh, he's not there anymore because a different cop made him go somewhere. And now we're separate. You know, like. So it's horrifying. It's a just like it, this is a dystopia all in itself. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway. Ending on a sour note there. <laughs> the story has a happy ending. You recommend holes? Because I do. Yeah, I recommend it. This movie's really good. It is really good. Like surprisingly good. It's one of the best adaptations from book to series that or to from book to movie that I can think of. I don't know if I would say it has a happy ending. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Happy in a childhood, yes, in a childish it's, it's sense. definitely happy in a childish sense. But after ending that conversation, the happy ending is, oh, I have money now. So all my problems are gone. I am no longer in that bracket. So I'll help the people that I do know that are in it's that bracket. It's a fairy tale. Ugh. Anyway, I do recommend it, though. Good movie. Just turn off your brain. <laughs> I, I like this movie a lot. I think it's, you know, one of the smartest true to life kids movies that yeah. made, made during this era. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's better than Peter Pan. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> ah, Rod wins. Rod does win. Win a movie for first time in a while, I think. First time in a long while. It's deserved. But what did the world think of Holes? Holes went on to gross a domestic total of $67.4 million and an additional $4 million international, totaling $71.4 million at the box office against a $20 million budget. So 
Sweet. It's good. Good. Good return. Yeah. The film Taking al- money holes. The film also received generally positive reviews, with praise going to its cast and faithfulness to its source material. Bowling Green Daily News, for example, called Holes, quote, smart, funny, and truly original, capable of entertaining its young target audience, as well as the parents who come along for the ride. And Real Views called it, quote, smart, strange, unpredictable, and defies the formulas that typically define this sort of motion picture. Film Journal International, on the other hand, called it, quote, witless, charmless, dreary as the desert setting itself and inexcusably sloppy in its attempt to meld two flashback strands into its main dopey story. I have disagreements with that, Yeah, but I I also have agreements with it. I pulled that one just because it was the most negative that I could find. I was like, that's, you know, that guy was not having a good time at Holes. He didn't like that it was unveiling some certain stuff in <laughs> within society. Literally, though, like the first part he was saying is like, yeah, it was dark. It was gritty. Like, I don't know what he said at the beginning. I was like, I mean, you're not wrong. Well, you go in certain mindsets. It's not it's it's not a happy family film. Yeah. In some regards, it's actually yeah. kind of a gritty movie. Yeah. But like, I think it's it's great for like young, like, you know, young adults or, you know, like teenagers, you know, that kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. I think middle school is like the perfect target audience. You take a three year old or four year old to watch this movie. They're not going to like it. No, they're bored or not enough colors. Or scared. Oh, yeah. But, you know, inexclusively sloppy. Like, he didn't appreciate that the movie had to deal with, like, three different storylines. Okay, I'm sorry that you don't have the ability to hold enough information in your head, sir. (laughs) But it really wasn't that much to follow. No, it was better than it could have been. Holes earned two California On Location Awards. It won Production Company of the Year and Location Professional of the Year for Location Manager Mark Benton Johnson. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, but it makes sense. It's like, yo, we made this work out in the desert. Yeah, I mean, it made us work. It also won Best Family Film at the Las Vegas Film Critics Society Awards. Okay. And uh, what of the legacy of Holes? Not a whole lot, but enough. (laughs) Holes spawned a soundtrack album, which featured artists like Shaggy, Moby, and Kevmo. I don't know who Kevmo is. But everyone's favorite... uh, Woodstock 99 performer Moby. Oh, yeah. He's a newcomer. He's an emerging artist. (laughs) Just over a month before the film's release, Louis Sakar published Stanley Yelnatz's Survival Guide to Camp Green Lake, a tongue-in-cheek handbook for newcomers to Camp Green Lake. Huh. Yeah, I never read that. Me neither. In 2006, author Louis Sakar published Small Steps, a spinoff and sequel to Holes focusing on Theodore Armpit Johnson. Oh, wow. Which I'm like, I kind of want to read that. That sounds interesting. Because <laughs> Armpit's a good character, you know, and it, it, like I think it deals with him coming home and his home life, you mm. know, and his family and stuff like that. And I was like, that sounds like an interesting story. Yeah, that sounds harrowing. <laughs> and in April 2023, where we are recording right now, producer Mike Metavoy claimed that Disney was considering readapting Holes as a television series. I th- I thought it was about that time that Pre- they were going to do that. Presumably for Disney Plus, which mm-hmm. I'm like, adapting into a TV series might work, you know, to flesh out some of the characters and the you know the storylines that got it, you know, had to get cut and truncated because it was mm-hmm. a movie. So that sounds interesting. I don't know if they, I don't know if they're going to invest the money in filming out in the desert though. Yeah. So. Be on the lookout. There might be another Holes thing coming out. Hey, I'm going to look out for it. Are you gonna, Would you watch it if it came? Maybe, mm. depending on the reviews. And the child actors. Yeah. 
feel like it's far it would have to be done on a, a sound sound stage or the the what is it called the big old the volume the volume yeah because it is you think global warming was bad then anyway that's holes holes we're done would you like to talk about some runners up yeah okay how many of these did i own on dvd which oh, one are you doing first yours or mine yours okay uh if we weren't watching P peter pan if we were watching peter pan for you because that was your movie and holes was mine right no, no 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 if we weren't watching holes we could have been watching pirates of the caribbean uh Curse of the Black Pearl, the first Pirates movie. Sure. Also among our first batch of DVDs. Uh, that movie's good. It's a good, like, good adventure movie. You know, the, the 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 sequels, it's like they get worse and worse in quality as they come out. But that first one was a lot of fun. I will say that makes more sense as an adventure to me. I know that Holes is still an adventure. But like I consider Caribbean the adventure more than Holes, more of a mystery. Hmm. Um, we also could have been watching uh, another uh, Marantine movie called Finding Nemo. That was the uh, third of the tr trio of DVDs that we had that Christmas. Yeah. And uh, yeah. It's that, a good movie. That was one of those things that I did not see that in the theater because it was I was getting too old. Mm -hmm. Right. It was like Carly, my sister, wanted to go watch Finding Nemo. So her and my mom did that. And I went and watched something else. Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember. Something else on this list, perhaps? May, I, I don't remember. No. But yeah, like I went and watched a different movie in a different theater mm -hmm. while they watched Finding Nemo. But then we got it on DVD and watched a lot of it. And it's good. And it's good. It's I good. Sh I should have just went and watched Finding Nemo. You should have. But hindsight. Uh, you also could have been watching Cheaper by the Dozen. Uh, yeah. <laughs> with, with Steve Martin and 12 kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Nothing else to say yeah, about that. Yeah, we had that one on DVD, too. Watched that a lot. Yeah. We also could have been talking about Kill Bill, Volume 1. Hey, that, that, that I was not watching as a kid, but I have since picked it up, and that is Quentin Tarantino, his uh, bloody tale of revenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty good. Yeah. It's not my favorite Tarantino movies. No, it's but not. But Kill Bill, Volume 1, it's, it's, it's the better Kill Bill. That's fair. Uh, last but not least, we could have been talking about... But God loves me. The Room. Oh, hi, Mark. No, you stop that. <laughs> yes, if you haven't heard of The Room, it is a the magnum opus of one Tommy Wiseau, a independent filmmaker from San Francisco and vaguely France. It's high tier art. He made the worst, like the best worst movie ever made. It's so bad. It's good. <sighs> you really should watch The Room. It's hilariously bad. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's like one of those things where it's like we watch it with our friends sometimes. Mm, there's a lot of adult scenes. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of nude scenes. <laughs> so uh, may maybe don't. Here's the thing. Um, I've watched The Room twice now, I think. It is only good if you have a group of people ready to talk about it in the movie. Yeah. Like not like we're going to discuss this afterwards. Like when we watched it at home, watching it with people and being like, ah, was the only good thing. It was such a bad movie. And then when we watched it at a midnight showing, that's that's really the only experience. As a matter a, of fact, you guys, you need to just find a midnight showing and go. We watched uh, a midnight showing. Tommy Wiseau was present. He answered questions and spoke to the audience before watching the film. And it was a like everyone participated in the movie. Yeah. If you've never been and you show up, I'm just going to say it's going to feel a little bit like Catholic Mass where everybody knows what to do on certain cues, what to say and what to what actions to take. And you will be 
totally immersed. <laughs> it's nuts. It is nuts. But that's uh, that's it. Instead, we talked about holes. Which do you think was the better? Do you think holes you, is better? Yeah. Do you think any of these would have uh, pr- prompted a better conversation than the ones we just had for holes? No. Cool. For me, um, the movie. If we, if I had not watched Peter Pan so much, we could have been talking about the Italian Job, uh, which is. I really do enjoy that movie. I'm still watching it more. Like I could see in a couple of years it's over. It would overtake Peter Pan uh, because occasionally I'm just like, ah, I just want to watch this heist music movie. It's like one of the few heist movies I actually like. I bet uh, I'd like it. I've never seen it. Yeah, let's give that. So we're going to watch that and even Steven's musical. So we're going to do after we go to the book fair today. <laughs> okay. Yeah. We've got alcohol. It'll be fun. <laughs> uh, we also could have been watching one of your personal favorites, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Oh, what a rotten movie that is. <laughs> it's fine. It's like, it's a fine movie. Like, I don't know why you hate it so much. It's so bad and ugly and just lacks all charm. No, it's very charming. There's a vampire. There's a Dorian Gray. There's an invisible man. There's a Sean Connery who clearly doesn't want to be there. <laughs> I think he put in his one, two. There's a wow. There's oh, a wow there. But yeah, it's based on, a, it's it's Justice League. But with like old literary characters like Captain Nemo and Dracula, whatever. Yes. Well, not Dracula. Dracula's wife. Mary Shelley, I think. Something like that. Um, it sucks. You suck. Uh, we also could have watched How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I We're into, into the list where like I really don't watch movies more than like three or four times unless like that's it for me. Like it's my comfort movie. So this one I've probably seen like two times, uh, but it's still up there on Sounds that Sounds like some movie your sisters or your cousins would be watching with you. No, I think I watched this. By my, I, there was a there was a time that I went through like a rom-com phase and I was like, I just want to watch. But nowadays, like if people are being too earnest in their declarations of love, I literally gag. I just ugh, like it's please don't. I love you. But if you're earnestly telling me that you love me, I might like. Bleh. Yeah, this is one of those like this is the absolute opposite of any movie I would have been interested in in 2003. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I don't I definitely didn't watch it in 2003. I probably watched it in like 2012. That's runners up. That's the end of our show. Yeah, that's the end of our show. So thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, you can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at Mediumate Show, where I will post videos and things. Maybe the music video for Dig It. Yeah. You can support the show financially by going to coffee.com slash mediamade. That is ko-fi.com slash mediamade, where you can donate five dollars to us and keep the keep the you know keep the lights on over here at the <laughs> studio. You can follow me personally on Twitter at Rod the Master before I get frustrated and leave. <laughs> um, I write for a video game website called ZeldaDungeon.net. I'll probably be playing a Wind Waker music under the uh, Peter Pan segment. Oh wow! Uh, because that came out in 2003, mm. uh, and I host a wrestling YouTube show called Keep Kayfabe. That's K A Y F A B E. Uh, if you're looking for me, I have a YouTube called Taming Tales. Uh, you can stop by if you want. I basically just, I've been vlogging and I tell stories, but also I haven't been vlogging and I haven't been telling stories. So it's a bit of a dead channel. You don't have to go. <laughs> um, yep. So that's that. Uh, we're going to close out uh, the show with a song from the Holes soundtrack. It's called If Only, which is actually an adaptation of the song that Elia uh, Yelnats was supposed to be singing to Madame Zeroni when he hmm. carried her up the mountain. The the lyrics are in the book, you know. And a alternative rock band from the early 2000s called Fiction Plane mm. recorded a 
a song version of that song, you know, and like it, it kind of sounds like the Goo Goo Dolls a little bit, you know, like that era of alternative rock, you know, not quite post grunge, but kind of like a touchy feely, you know, ballad, rock ballad. Mm. Perfect for your buzz ballads uh, compilation CD. Gosh. Oh, yeah. So we're going to close out with that and we will see you all next time with our music 2003. And remember, kids. Digging holes builds character. Shoving your enemies into them and covering them builds satisfaction. Mm -hmm.